So fire away. Ask anything. I, I did pour myself a drink. So. Well, you're right. drinking. I'll oh, you're actually out in the sauna, Eric. I am. Yeah. Mm. I am. What are you drinking? This is a this is a space side scotch. That's it. Yeah. What is it? A space side Glenlivet. Uh, if you could read that, it's actually a really nice bottle. Uh, nice. It's only about thirty bucks, and uh, it might be one of the best I've ever had. Not that I drink a lot of scotch, but it's uh, it's real clean, real smooth, and uh, yeah, it's like a good uh, gift if you if you give out presents like that because it's not too expensive, but it's really high quality. A good sauna drink. Yeah, I don't know about that. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. Hey, what <laughs> are you drinking, Jesse? What are you drinking, Jesse? I'm drinking a, uh, a gin. So it's a uh, local gin. It's called Tomcat. Oh, cool. It's aged in, uh, I believe, whiskey barrels. So it's um, it drinks much more like a whiskey than a gin. Very smooth. Probably one of my favorites. So I've never seen a gin that color. It must be from the uh, aging in the barrels. Yeah, from the aging in the barrels. Yeah, but it's delicious. It's um, If I could drink it every day, I would. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. They make it right down the road from us. So it's good stuff. Yeah. What about you, Keith? What are you sipping? Uh, this is nothing special. It's just a Gerald Steiner uh, water. I had to grab something quick, so I don't have any time to mix something up. I have a I have a whiskey, but it's not a ball. It's uh, my friend. He's a Cypriot. Uh, he knows more about whiskey than I do, and he he bought lots of little uh, sample bottles. So I thought I'd crack one open. You just doing airplane shooters? <laughs> like little droppers so they're they're that just like, like a little dropper bottle they're they're ones that are like uh pretty expensive so he's just buying little sample bottles of different ones that you, you he wouldn't buy a bottle of Ooh. so i'm just uh he's just buying extra ones for me because i'm scottish so i just get them added to my shopping cart <laughs> for some reason so not yeah. arguing are you, are you in scotland right now or where no no i'm in uh, cyprus okay. so yeah i'm kind of either here or highlands in scotland but uh, today is, I feel like I'm in Scotland today because it's the first day it's cold. First day I've put the heating on. First day I've uh, felt like, you know, it was raining outside and uh, stormy wind, uh, rain at the glass and stuff. First time I felt, I actually felt a little bit homesick for Christmas. But um, I'll be fine when the sun comes out again. I was in the sea yesterday, so it's not like this all the time, you know. So it's random weather. Yeah, Eric, I'm getting an optical illusion. You have these. Uh, I don't know what what's hanging behind you. Oh, this. It looks like when I just catch a glance of you on the screen, it looks like yeah. you're like two thumbs up on either side. Oh, either. Oh, <laughs> no, it's these uh these handles for I don't know when. This is my friend's sauna. Uh, he's a masseuse and a trainer, and I don't know if he uses these for something sexual or what but they're they're kind of like straps that you can really hold on to and i guess reach different parts of your body when you want to handle it. yeah 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 uh, yeah so you guys already know each other jesse eric uh i mean know each, know each other is a relative term i suppose but um yeah i mean i, I don't even remember how i got connected with eric um, I mean, it was through Twitter. I'm not sure how at this point. And then Keith was, I don't know, four or five, six months ago. Yeah. And then Kevin, you were relatively recent, which is funny is um, my wife's big into posture and is actually 
heard of you before me. I was explaining to her about the oh, podcast. Cool. Cool. She's like, oh, I think I've really? listened to him before. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I remember your name once Eric said it, but I wasn't following you. I must have I've seen you a while ago. And uh, yeah. I wasn't sure how I didn't already know, because normally yeah. I'd know everybody that everybody's yeah. <laughs> talking about. So cool. Uh, yeah, Jesse, I think I came across you through Mark Bovier. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Great guy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's so far away. What kind of questions you guys have? Mm. I, I'd like to know more about uh, your, your well, tweets. We're just gonna, yeah. I was just going to say a tweet you said today. You said uh, a tweet you tweeted today. You said that uh, you had tons of sleep. But then you woke up and you were kind of groggy and uh, tired, uh, and you think it's something to do with the weather and the snow or the outside, so, and you think there's some connection. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I do. I think that uh, you know it's funny. Um, yeah, I worked out pretty hard yesterday. I went for a hike, hit the sauna, all that, and I came in last night and was just exhausted. Um, but fell asleep, slept like a rock, slept for like ten hours. Had trouble getting up this morning. Slept in. I know it's all our, all our kids slept in. Everything seemed kind of sluggish. And it was funny because I tweeted that out and immediately had like multiple people being like, me too, me too, me too, me too. So yeah, you're one of them. It, it's one of those things where it's, um, I do have a theory that low pressure systems affect our, our moods and, and, um, you know, kind of our vibe. Um, I noticed that on high pressure days when, you know, the air is dry and it's sunny and there's not a cloud in the sky, you typically feel very, very, uplifted you feel energetic um and you notice that I, I feel like when you live in a place like vermont i live in northern vermont for people who don't know we have these extremes in weather right where one day it'll be 55 degrees and the next day you're gonna get a bunch of snow um the winter time it goes from cold to colder essentially we have high pressure systems where usually when it's high pressure in the winter time it's very very bitter cold and then a low pressure system will come in we'll get a bunch of, of weather uh, but even in the summer, it just oscillates between soggy, wet weather to humid, you know, warm weather. It never really gets that hot up here. But I've definitely seen a direct connection to your energy levels and how you're feeling based on weather. And I, I like I like rainy, cold weather. Um, I think it's good. It's contemplative, but it definitely seems to have an effect on on one's moods. And I swear I've seen like low pressure systems affect like animals, especially if you know you get a bunch of cows that are calving um you'll see animals or lambs pigs stuff like that seem to kick into labor i would say before a low pressure system comes there's definitely a connection there that i think that perhaps we were we were able to to understand it a lot more but something that's probably been lost but uh there's definitely a connection one thing i noticed uh moving uh from the suburbs up to the mountains is in that Really, I have no real experience with uh, rural living before this. You know, I did a lot of hiking, but never really spent a lot of time there. Is uh, it's not like one. It wasn't like a uh, a switch was flipped, but all of a sudden, I could just I noticed I was sort of predicting the weather. You know what I mean? Like you become more sensitive. You can you smell the rain coming. Uh, so I think uh, I think someone like you who kind of lives that life, then yeah, it's definitely gonna. I think you can probably regain that. Or maybe you just never lost it, but I think mean, most people probably did, probably have. Yeah. I think I think some of that's like a pattern recognition thing, and I think some of it's just a, a feel thing. I know I I commercial fished in Alaska for a while, and there's a, the captain was this old guy, awesome guy, one of the coolest guys I ever met, and he'd be listening to the weather radio on the boat. He'd come out and he'd say, "No, no, you know the weather's calling for this," but he'd look around, he'd look at the sky, and he'd say, "But 
that's not right. We're going to get this kind of weather at this time. And he almost nailed it like every time. I remember just being blown away by that kind of connection that he had to nature. And you just sit there and you'd look at the waves, you'd kind of look at the sky, smell the Mm -hmm. air and just come out with a weather prediction. That was nine times out of 10 more accurate than what he was getting Mm -hmm. on the, on the weather report. So that's super impressive. Yeah. I have a friend. All I can do is be like, yeah, I think I smell fog coming. But that's about it. I I have a friend from back home who's who's adamant that he can predict when it's going to rain by whether he gets sweaty balls or not. So, like, his ex-girlfriend confirms this. So he's really good at predicting. He goes, he gets sweaty balls, (laughs) it's going to rain within a day. I was like, you sure it's not spiders coming into the house? You're predicting the spiders, not not the balls, but he's convinced it's the balls. So, and then he did it one time. Well, he told me one time, and then uh, it worked. So, anyway. Yeah, right. Do you one time? (laughs) <laughs> he told me about no, it. I didn't, you should have a podcast. I didn't insist on, on any data. Yeah, I, I was fine with the fine with the verbal. But yeah, so I don't oh, know how. Man. But maybe that's somehow connected with something. I don't know. But yeah, so have, you have you guys? Uh, I was going to say, uh, have you read anything about like the uh, Polynesian settlers to the South Pacific? Like, uh, I've way, I, read a little I've bit read about Polynesian wares. Yeah, I've I've read a little, but just what little I've read is pretty incredible. The way they were able to kind of chart their path just by looking at the, you know, looking at the birds, what kind of birds and which direction they were flying and looking at the tides and just the way a wave looked. They could kind of figure out where they were going. And man, that's it's like a a lot of that stuff has to I wonder how much of that happens under the surface, you know, in the subconscious, like you just kind of know it or how much they're piecing through with their executive functioning. I don't know. It's weird. The the only place I've read about that wasn't like a, a firsthand account, but in, um, you know, Robert Green, the author, he's got a book called Mastery. And I think part of it, I don't know if it was Polynesian, but it was some type of Pacific Islander um, peoples that would sail across the ocean. And uh, he explained how they had mastery of on the ocean, the sky, like it was so a part of their culture, they were uh, raised that way. So it's, that's like formed the way they, they thought. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were just masters of navigating these ocean pretty much because that's, uh, it's almost like the intrinsic language that they used to navigate their life by is, mm-hmm. is all these weather patterns uh the way the ocean looked the way the sky looked and all these things so is and it was built into them from birth pretty much yeah i guess Um, you do it long enough it becomes embedded in your genetics you know yeah yeah well that was the point of this it was um well obviously the book was mastery so it was people that are real masters of the craft and how they get to be that way and they're also using uh, the position of the constellations in the stars to uh yeah, yeah, yeah. To I, I don't know. If they didn't actually but... have any like instruments measuring it, but they just did it all by, um, uh, uh, I guess, memorization of the sky and how it looked and what direction they had but to go. It's not, it's not just navigating. They would, the, the, the constellations, the, they would embed stories about the culture yeah. and uh, rules for living and stuff and the little uh, just mythologies yeah. would be built into the positions of the stars. So you just needed to remember the stories and then you could uncode mm-hmm. the, um, the, the star knowledge yeah. uh, in it at the same time. And it's all just kind of all one thing, you know, they're not really thinking it separate as at all. 
and a lot of those older cultures seem to have the the yeah. words for like the sky or like space with all the stars will be the same as for the ocean you know like they're kind of because there's on the sea so much that these things are, are um yeah. related somehow maybe not the same word but this they would have a uh there'd be concepts that included both, uh, or something Jesse, can you look up at the sky uh, enough? Sorry to cut you off. No worries. I was going to ask, can you, um, like, do you know when a cow is going to uh, calve or whatever, like down to the day or the time of day or whatever? Um, if you artificially inseminate him, you have a due date like you would, you know, okay. uh, like a person kind of. Um, and it's, you know, it's always hit or miss. It's usually around that date. But as far as like intuitively knowing, I guess I've seen enough calvings at this point where I can kind of look at a cow and be like, Oh yeah, she's going to calve in the next day or two typically, or she's starting to go into labor. And that's, that's all mostly just behavior. You know, you're looking at the cow, the way she's standing, not eating, chewing your cud. Um, it's just kind of a, you just look at her and tell. So my mother um, has, the same I, should back, I should back that up for, for a second. Like a lot of people I'm sure that are listening don't know. I work on a commercial a conventional dairy. So I have a homestead. We have a few cows here that we do our own beef and dairy with, but professionally I work on a, uh, a dairy. So we're calving in like 300 calves a year, essentially. Cool. Yeah, that reminded me, my mother, she, uh, my dad has, uh, she, they have sheep and she always knows when the, when the sheep are, she, she calls it tuning up. She goes, she's tuning up. My dad's like, no, she's fine. She's fine. Let's just go home. It's fine. And then uh, she's like, no, she's tuning up. And then all, almost all this, she gets it right. It's just something about their, we're just doing something, you know, yeah. uh, women's intuition, maybe. I don't know. <clears throat> so I had a so question. Uh, maybe uh... you can clear up. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure among all of us, you have a bit more insight, Jesse. Um, you, you hear a lot of horror stories or doom predictions about, you know, meat production in this country. Um, what do you think? How serious is the issue? What do you think? Uh, maybe regular people should do to get ahead of it, you know, provided they, they don't want to just go vegetarian. Yeah. I think that's, it's a complicated question because it's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, you can go multiple ways that ways of that people are talking about supply chain issues. Um, you know, we've consolidated the, the slaughter industry to the point where you have these massive factories processing all these and, it doesn't take much to shut one of those plants down. I mean, we saw it with COVID, right? A couple of positive COVID cases and they, they shut production down. Um, or it can be a sanitization issue, all this stuff. So whether or not that's going to become a major issue going forward, I think it could be. Um, I also believe that we're at the forefront of, you know, the war on meat. You know, we're already seeing it. And it's kind of the new target for environmentalists is that, you know, meat is bad. It's intrinsically bad for a host of reasons. And uh, meat isn't bad, um, but I do agree that there needs to be, and there should always be a conversation of critique about, you know, how we do agriculture, particularly how we do agriculture at scale. Um, so how do you get ahead of it? I think that's, again, it's complicated, right? Because the price that you're going to pay for something that's raised on a small farm that you have a relationship with is going to be quite a bit more. Um, I, I think it's worth it uh, for the benefits. And the meat industry is sketchy. Like, let's, let's admit it. Like, there's, there's some pretty sketchy parts of it. And unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of that doesn't really fall necessarily on producers. It falls on, you know, how we finish meat and the processing end of it. 
Um, I think people have this theory that all beef is raised in these massive feedlots where they're the corn and soy is getting tucked to them and they're, they're living in a, you know, absolute pit of filth and, you know, then they, they die violently. Um, and that's really not the case, you know, at least for beef, most, a lot of beef cows are raised on the plains. They're raised with their, their moms grazing. Um, many of them are finished on feedlots, but that's three to six months of, of their lives are in a feedlot and then their, their lives are over. They usually have a dry place to lay down food in front of them. Um, personally, I'm not in favor of tucking a bunch of corn and soy at your animals for a host of nutritional reasons. Um, I think it's just a cheap, easy way to, to finish animals and get them fat. Um, obviously, I think in, you guys have probably talked about this before, or at least amongst ourselves, that the quality of the meat's definitely going to be great by putting them on a diet that's not natural to what they've kind of evolved to eat. Um, but ultimately, like, not all feedlots are necessarily evil or bad. Um, you know, I, I had a buddy who dated a girl whose parents ran a hog farm out in like Iowa and they did like kind of like 20,000 hogs, like something ridiculous. And the operation was insanely clean. Their pigs looked happy. Um, again, I, I'm not necessarily the kind of meat that I want to eat, but it didn't necessitate that these animals had a bad life. You know, right. there's, there's poorly run farms as well-run farms, but, um, preparing for the future. It's, it's kind of why we do what we do. You know, I have a rather pessimistic outlook on our culture and where we're headed. Um, and so the more that we can pull calories off our land, particularly high, high quality proteins is important to us. And if we can do that and provide for some of our neighbors, great. Um, but it's, it's something that I think people who are conscious of that are going to have to navigate. And it's, it's so dependent on the context that you're in and where you're at. You know, I live in Vermont and you can find good grass fed freezer beef anywhere. You know, it's not something that's rare. You can go out and find it. Yeah. Um, same with pastured pork, pastured poultry. We're really in a, in a good place of that. But if you're in the middle of the suburbs of Illinois, you know, I think that's going to be a lot more of a challenge for you. So um, the best thing I think is to try to find a farm that you, try, uh, you know, build a relationship with that, with that farm and kind of get to know their practices and commit that you're going to have to spend more money than you'd probably feel comfortable with if that's the route you want to go. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the short end of it. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I've, I, uh, in late summer, I split like a cow share from a low local farm. Um, and it wasn't that expensive. I mean, for the quantity of meat that you get, um, I think that's a big thing. If, if you're buying, if you have a freezer that you can keep it in and you're buying bulk, I don't think you necessarily have to spend that much more for better quality meat than you get at a grocery store. Yeah, I would agree. And it's definitely, it's, it's a volume thing, right? It's like a lot of money. It's a lot more money up front. But when you look yeah. at like an individual's ribeye that's on your plate that you're grilling up and you realize that if you went to the store and bought that same grass-fed ribeye, you're looking at like a, like, man, I'm eating like a $30 steak right now. It cost me $4.25 a pound to do this, you know? So there's definitely a, um, a cost up front that it does save money in the long run for sure. Um, but you just have to be prepared to, to fork over more up front and to have the logistics in your house, the freezer space, like you said. So, and some I people that's hard. If you, live in, if you live in an apartment, that can be really hard, you know? Yeah. Hmm. I just picked up a, or I just paid for a whole cow. I haven't picked it up yet, but, uh, 
I think all said and done, it's going to be about three grand for like about 600 pounds of, you know, product. And it's all, it's organic grass fed. It's from a farm about two hours away. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that, you know, and I'm sure, yeah. you know, most of it will be, you know, either lean roasts or ground beef, but you know, a good portion will be the stuff that you normally pay 20 bucks a pound for. If you're going to go to like a whole foods or some health store for grass fed, you know, ribeyes. So I'm, and I, I have the room for it. So I'm pretty happy with that. I have to get manage of it. One, one of the things that we've gotten into is I think a lot of homesteaders try to bite off more than they can chew. And they're trying to do chickens and pork and goats or cows or whatever. And what we found very early on is that um, we tried to do a few things and to do a few things really well. And so I like cows. I've always, I've always loved cows. I grew up around cows. And so, um, you know, working full time, I'm a father of four, we homeschool. And we're like, why don't we just really focus on cows and, you know, fill our freezers and then trade and barter with it. So, yeah. you know, we're trading and bartering for lamb, pork. Um, we don't eat a lot of poultry, but I'm sure I could find somebody to trade. And that's really key if you live in an area. If you, you know, do something that you can get an excess of and then trade it. Yeah. You know, trade and barter. And people that are into the same kind of things that we are, are going to be all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Jesse, how much land that's do like you have? Marketplace like right that. there, you know? Yeah. Sorry, Eric. I was just saying that's that's basically how a marketplace began. It's probably the very first one. Yeah. It's just like that. People who are good at one thing trade their uh, wares for someone who's good at something else. Yeah. 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 I agree. What are you saying, Keith? Uh, I was asking how much land you need. For, to raise a cow? Yeah, yeah. Is it like 10 acres or 5 or 20 or so I, I don't know. <laughs> Again, it depends on, it depends on where you're at, you know, like context. And this is one of the reasons I don't like people always ask me what I'm reading for homesteading books or people I'm following or, or videos I'm watching. And I don't read or watch anything on homesteading. And that, you like that I, I, guy, right? Oh God, that guy is such a trip. <laughs> he is something else. I get a good laugh out of that. I, sh I, I probably shouldn't even post about it, but it's just hard not to. Um, but a lot of people are out there trying to recreate the wheel and so much of homesteading and farming is about the context that you're in, right? Like, it's like, I'm in Northern Vermont, man. We got six to seven months of hard winter here. Um, our grass grows very well, but incredibly fast. And so we're packing a grazing season and harvesting all of our feed for the following winter in a matter of four months. Wow. So as far as acreage goes, like raise a cow in Virginia is going to be a lot different than the acreage it takes to raise a cow. In Vermont, just because the grass is going to grow a lot faster up here. Um, we harvest the same amount of hay that they harvest down south, but we do, or maybe more in some cases, but we're doing it in a very, very short window. Um, so you can theoretically, it depends on how much you want to feed out, right? Like we're doing all grass fed. Um, so we're, you know, if you want to supplement feed animals, if you're going to do grain, you need less grass for that. If you're going to supplement hay throughout the year, you can do a lot less grass. It really depends on how much you want to supplement. But as far as doing it, these weekends is what you want. And that's, but that's heavily managing it. Um, we move our cows every day. Uh, yeah. Eric, so see the cow that you bought, how long do you think that will last you? Um, 
I don't know. I have to kind of, uh, I don't think in pounds. I got to see it, you know, lay before me, I think. But uh, it'll probably last longer than I think because people will just start getting sick of ground beef, you know. I mean, I won't, but, you know, the family will. So, um, I don't know, man. Um, i say at least half a year, most likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Four kids, we go through almost a thousand pounds of, of beef a year. Oh yeah. And that's okay. eating beef. Like that's about, and I mean, we eat beef almost every day. Yeah. Um, and the kids do get sick of ground beef. You guys start getting creative in how you, how you use it, mm-hmm. which is fun. I mean, it makes you better cook. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, we, we fly through beef. We do two beefs for ourselves or at least a beef and a half every year. Okay. Wild. So what's your, uh, what's your top way to use the ground beef? Like what's the most creative? You know, I mean, obviously with, with kids, we do a lot of burgers, you know, you know, good mm-hmm. burgers. We make our own buns, all that stuff. But um, we also do a lot of curries. You know, I've kind of had this. We should talk about feeding kids because that's always a, a hot topic in my house. Right. Um, I find that ground beef is a great way to introduce kids subtly to new flavors as well. So it's like, you know, I'll do burgers and I'll just put a little hint of curry in those burgers, you know, kind of slowly yeah. introduce those kids to flavors like curry or garlic and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then move that into doing like a beef and rice dish for them. Um, we'll cook the rice in their own bone broth and then do yeah. like a curried beef with it or, or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, two or three out of the four kids will always eat it. There's always one that kind of box at it. And that's, that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. What are you eating, Eric? I'm eating some uh, beef jerky. Nice. Yeah. Just finished a workout here, so I'm a little hungry. But I can always eat. Yeah, one of the great pleasures of life, right? Love eating. Mm-hmm. What's funny is the outside of... We're on the fasting group chat. (laughs) Yeah, what's that? We're all in the fasting group chat. Yeah, we love you. Yeah, are we all, are we all in that chat? Of all of us, uh, all four of us. In there? No, not Kevin. I'm, I'm not enough. We should get you Kevin. Do you want to be in? We could we could add you. I'm not a big faster, to be honest. I can speak up for you, man. Okay. Uh, I'm not against it. You I just it's never. I've never got into it. Uh, I never really tried, to be honest. Done it a few times. I basically just one time I did it for three or four days, and I basically just hid in a, under the covers in the bed for the last two days. Just oh, couldn't function at all. Or, of course, Kevin would go all out. Like first time he tried <laughs> fasting, that may be part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is what happens if you get an idea from Twitter. You're you're getting an idea from someone who's way deep already oh, yeah. on this thing. You're there's no there's no surface level, and you just think this is the entry point, and you just try it, yeah. and you're and you're fucked. I think we could probably mess people up pretty good just by posting some really cockamamie, you know, experiments to try. Definitely. You guys gonna all run out and buy a cow tomorrow, and uh, just jump right into it. You should. Uh, well, start what's the situation down. in Cyprus? What's the meat situation what? there? Is it a lot of lamb and goat? Uh, yeah, a lot, of like, oh, yeah. a lot of lamb and and uh, uh, it's a lot of lamb and uh, pork. It's like mm, okay. it's just pork, pork all the time. Uh, the pork is I prefer the lamb here. I love the lamb. There's like some yeah. this traditional way they cook it in this kind of clay oven, outdoor clay oven, and uh, takes like hours, you know, half a day or whatever. And uh, the meat's just falling off the bone and stuff. It's amazing. 
Uh, and then like the, the lamb chops and stuff are amazing. And uh, the seafood is the other thing. You were talking about seafood on Twitter yesterday, Eric, I think. Uh, I was thinking about seafood last week and it was, um, I was going to talk about it in the podcast anyway, because there was something, uh, when I, when I have all the seafood in front of me and the shellfish and that, there's, it clicks something in my mind and I, I go into this, I love devouring it. There's like this devouring mentality just comes upon me. And so I only get it either with, uh, if I eat, uh, brains or, uh, uh, marrow. I get this kind of frenzy feeling. It just it happens all the time. I don't know what it is. And seafood, I just go in this devouring mode. I love it. It's like a, it's an enjoyable. Uh, and I, I thought I was imagining it, but then one time my girlfriend put some uh, marrow in my mouth on a spoon without me knowing what it was. And I had that frenzied feeling. I was like, what's that? And then it turned out it was marrow. So it's a real thing for me anyway. I don't know what's triggering. And uh, yeah. no, it happens I when I get eating brains you, as well, but I don't know, is it some sort of, I don't know, carnival memories, maybe ancestral carnivals. Who knows? Hmm. You come from you guys, big organ meat eaters. Uh, I like never it. used yeah. to be, but I have been recently. Yeah. Not Keith, yeah. though. What was the question? Organ meat. We're still trying to convince Keith to dip into the liver. I, I'm with Keith, man. I'm not. I'm not a big liver guy at all. I know it's good for me, and if oh. for some reason I've never been able to get into like livers, unless it's like you know ch- shitty chicken livers wrapped in bacon or something like that. Hmm. But um, I don't know. I we we get obviously you kill a beef, you get you know a massive amount of liver, and I always end up giving it away to my neighbors. And um, you could. I have a I have a friend, a coworker that suggested grinding it up into your ground beef, which is a great way to to mix it in without really being able to taste the flavor and get the, the nutritional benefits of it. But man, I'm not a big I'm not a big liver guy. I can't get into it. I'll eat heart. Yeah. I'll eat tongue. I'll eat you know all the other stuff, but never in my life have I kind of craved liver the way that mm. some of my other friends do. Yeah, heart is a lot easier to a lot easier yeah, to get into great. than liver. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say I've ever craved liver, but uh, I can I can enjoy it and appreciate it. But I don't know that it's all that necessary, to be honest. I mean, you think about the well, liver is there's only one in the animal. It's not like people are eating tons of it, you know. Maybe it was just appreciated because it was uh, well because there's only one. It's like a rare portion of meat. Everybody gets a little sliver. And yeah. It's probably enough. I don't know if I've ever said I've been against liver. I haven't really I had it. Assume. No. Lamb. I'm against yeah. lamb. So against I know you guys goat. all seem to really like lamb, but I just don't <laughs> like the taste. Okay. I'll need to start lamb posting more now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to take the lamb pill. <laughs> I've had it. I just don't like it. I have a friend that's the same. He grew up in Alaska on Kodiak. And uh, I guess his dad would always, he, he grew up eating like, you know, rams with, you know, huge balls. So it just tasted like nothing. But I get, you know, uh, I think lamb and goat, they can really pick up the, the flavor of the hormones coursing through them. So he can't even touch lamb because he just has those memories. Yeah, I can't say right? I've had the same experience, but I uh, same outcome though, I guess. Yeah, yeah. If you ever had mutton? It's like, uh, yeah, you could have had some really strong tasting mutton before, and that would definitely. I feel like if you're not, if you've had a bad experience with mutton, I could definitely see you blocking out 
independent lamb. Mm. So, yeah, or like an old goat, like an old dairy goat or an old ram or billy goat. Mm. Yeah. Kind of nasty. Those don't appeal to me at all. Lamb, goat, whatever. Mountain you goat. You like the cheese though. You like the cheese. The cheese is great. Yeah. Yeah. I love the cheese. Yeah. So I think, Kevin, there was another... One of the topics we were talking about was technology, right? That was the one yeah. you proposed a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So, like, yeah, we were talking about the, well, I don't know, I'll ask you, Jesse, what's your relationship with technology? So, based on, you know, a lot of people are hardcore one way or the other. What's what's your relationship with it? Well, it's interesting. I mean, if I was a single bachelor, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably be, um, kind of a Luddite, right? Like I'd be, you know, and we have friends like this living here in Vermont where we have multiple people on our road that don't have running water. And part of that's a poverty thing. And part of that's a, a you know, an issue of, of choice. Um, as far as technology goes, it, it's tough because I'm raising four little kids in this world that's saturated in technology and I don't want them to be behind. Like, I don't want to hinder their development when they get out in the, the real world and become adults. I want to be able to navigate that. And so it's, it's, for me, it comes down to parenting in such a way that we're navigating all this where we're teaching our kids to be connected to nature in a very, very deep way, but also teaching them how to navigate technology and, and being conscientious that that stuff can be very, very addicting. You know, we live in an era where everything's saturated in screens. Like my kids, before we pull them out of school, they'd all get their own personal iPads in school. It's like, like, the kid doesn't need to be on a screen all day. They're already at, at school. Um all that stuff is, and a lot of the stuff that we, we see in technology, at least as far as screen time is concerned, is very, very addictive. I mean, it's addictive to me, uh, never mind the brain of a five-year-old. And yeah. so as far as technology on that end of things, we try to limit screen time. We try to limit our own screen time. We don't have a TV in our house. We don't watch TV. Uh, as far as technology on the, the homesteading side of it, I own a tractor. I use my tractor every day. Not every day, but, um, you know, we use a tractor frequently. Um, I try to, to homestead in such a way that I'm getting connected with the soil and the ground as much as possible. Um, you know, to try to have a very hands-on approach, I think is good. And I think it, it fulfills a sense of purpose when you're getting your hands dirty and you're physically exerting yourself. Um, I almost needlessly physically exert myself on our homestead. You know, like I could run water lines and pump water to, to our cows in our homestead, but um, it's an excuse for me to go outside every day and have to water them by hand by bucketing water out of a brook. Keeps me in shape, keeps me out there observing them, gets me out in the fresh air. Um, so I'm not anti-technology at all. I'm also, you know, I think we should be pro-technology in a way, but we need to be wise about that. We need to be prudent. We need to be, um, you know, we need to examine that and say, is this disconnecting us more from nature and from each other and, and from each other as a family unit? Um, there's a million ways that you can kind of skin a cat, but that's kind of our approach to it. So we're not anti-tech. We're not necessarily pro-tech. We're kind of taking that middle ground, the via media, where we're, we're looking at things and, and deciphering whether or not this is a, a benefit or a, not a benefit. That's kind of the long answer there. Mm -hmm. Um. As far as like technology that we deploy on our homestead, like I said, I use a tractor, moving round bales, um, all of our hay. We try to be conscientious of, of where we're getting our stuff. All of our hay is is 
harvested within 10 miles of my house. Um, so obviously that stuff's being harvested with highly mechanized equipment. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, we're still milking and hand milking our cows into a bucket at home. Um, I find that I could get a milking machine, I actually have one, but I find that sitting down with my cow and, and with my head buried into her side and, and hand milking her is, is very contemplative. It's a way to connect with that animal at a working level that most people don't, most people don't have that connection to a working animal. Um, those are the little things that we do to try to, to stay grounded, I would say, but I, I'm skeptical of anybody who becomes a little legalistic about banning all technology or, or really being averse to it. Um, you know, we can, we can get into the Amish, you know, we actually have some Amish people up here now and, uh, I don't know. At the same time, you look at their life and how they're doing it and there's something innately very appealing about it. So I could be wrong. Um, but this is kind of the groove that we've settled into and how we're, how we're approaching it. Your kids help out around the farm a lot? As much as possible. They're all really little, you know, we ended up, my wife and I were married for like eight or nine years before we had kids. And all of a sudden we had four kids, you know, my kids ages oh. right now, two, four, two, four, six and eight. Oh, okay. So we're, uh, it's just chaos. And we're just getting to the point where our two oldest are getting really helpful. You know, planting garlic, weeding stuff, even like hauling water for cows, um, stacking wood. I think my kids are in my basement right now as we speak, stacking wood. So really, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I didn't give them a choice, but you know, they're they're having fun with it. Mm-hmm. So, hey, I think I think it's important. I think I think it's kids. Yeah, you know, I was raised. I was kind of raised in a homestead, and so it was always, you know, we had to stack wood, we had to haul water. When blueberry season was in, when I was a kid, my parents wouldn't let me come in at night. And so I picked an entire coffee can full of blueberries. Mm. And so little things like that. And I loved it. Like, I, th- I thought it was awesome. So little things like that, we're trying to get our kids into, get our kids yeah. to do the same. So as much as possible. So your health and fitness are coming from the land, the environment around you. It's, it's pre-integrated. You don't need to integrate it. Yeah. That's what we try because, because to be honest, like I, you know, I work out from time to time, but like I don't have, I don't have the time to work out that I, that I wish I had. And so also with working out, like I want to, I want to have fun working out, you know? So my idea of working out is like going on a hike, going on a bike ride, swimming in our pond, playing with our kids, right. Um, integrating it into our, our methodology and working, you know, like I said, we're hauling water, you know, I could, I could split wood on a mechanical splitter. I could blow through and, and split a cord of wood by hand. Um, whether or not as I age and get older, I switch to more of that stuff, you know, if, and when my body breaks down, that's, I'm open to that. Um, but I also have this kind of grind set where like, I just want to keep grinding right till the end, you know? Um, yeah. There's something more meaningful anyway, if you're, you know, you're chopping the wood by by yourself and then putting it on the fire by yourself, it's somehow warmer than the automated heating would have been. The food you you reared yourself tastes better. Yeah. You don't well, no, just tastes better on a on a normal level, but also because it's more meaningful. You probably don't even need as much to be satisfied. You can probably eat less. I can't prove this, but you can probably less food yeah. will satisfy you because there's the kind of it's triggering some kind of uh, deeper meaning in you rather than just you know. I like definitely don't eat less. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, both both is better. <laughs> you know, Kevin. No, a little bit of research into that, uh, at least like they did. There's this one study where they had guys either uh, chop wood 
or do an equivalent amount of uh, like calorically equivalent amount of just normal training, like exercise. Right. And they did that for a few weeks and they tested their, their testosterone levels. And uh, they started the baseline. The levels are all the same. By the end of the three weeks, uh, the guys who were talking wood had like, you know, double the testosterone of the dudes who were doing the same amount of work, but it was all like weights and stuff. So it was, it wasn't meaningful. Whereas the, you know, the chopping wood activates something in your body where it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm not just doing this in the gym. I'm actually doing this to survive or to provide warmth for my family. Definitely, there's definitely a greater, there's definitely a greater purpose. And there's something profound about, you know, when it's 20 below and you're bringing wood up from your basement and you're firing, firing it into your wood stove, keeping your family warm. And we try to make things as like, you know, family oriented as possible. Right. So like I'm chopping wood and my kids are stacking it and it's, that's not always easy, you know, because kids are, are hard to manage and we try to make it fun for them. But there, there is something profound about, you know, cooking meat that was born, raised and died on your land, you know, heating your house with wood that you chopped or, or stacked, whatever. Um, there's something that I think is deeply innate that has been part of the human experience for hundreds of thousands of years for in a lot of cases that uh, we we've been separated by by technology, going back to the technology question. So I, I think that, like I said, it's, it's to try to, to try to find a higher purpose in what we do, I think is like, I feel very fulfilled in my life. You know what I mean? Like I have a lot of fun doing what I do. I feel incredibly fulfilled, but I, what I can't say is that it's easy, right? Like I grind, like I'm up every day at 4am for work. Um, I'm physically working myself hard, you know, it's never easy, but it's very, very fulfilling. It feels good. So I think those two are linked. The difficulty and the satisfaction. Mm -hmm. You can't separate yeah. those. It's probably, you know, it's all connected. I talk about this. I talk about this a lot philosophically is I, I think that joy, we live in this society right now. That's just, everything's about consumption and consuming, 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 and about getting that dopamine hit. And there's something about the whole like slow food movement, working hard, like joy takes cultivation, right? Like, we, we want what we think makes us happy. And most people just stuff their face with cheap, empty calories and, and, and screens, right? And TV shows and media. But cultivating real joy takes an immense amount of work, physical work, emotional work, mental work. Um, but all things that are worthy, that are truly worthy, I think, just take toil. You know, and if you're not, if you're not ready or in that mindset to make that happen, I think you're going to you're going to kind of flounder a bit and, and finding yourself and then finding purpose and meaning in things. And when you're doing things like this, you don't like, you know, getting fuel for a fire on a cold day and sitting in front of the fire and watching the fire, watching the logs burn and listen to it crackle or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. you don't, you're not craving stimulation online so much, you know, it's like, it's much more interesting than scrolling. You're just, yeah. it's, it, you're already occupied like that. And it's, it's something different. It's not like, you know, most people are going to sit in front of the fire and then go on Twitter yeah. and say, just looked in front, I sat in front of a fire. It was amazing. You know, yeah. it's not that. It's, um, yeah. you just don't need it. You don't crave it as yeah. much. It's almost like the, the, the glowing, light, the glowing the screens. Yeah. It's like uh, a replacement for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it's, it's more, I mean, and for six, seven months out of the year, my day begins at between, you know, two thirty and 4am by getting up and starting a fire or rekindling the fire from the night before. And, and so it's, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, um, it's mowing or watching things. It does make you a weirdo, right? Like I, I hang out, like most people from the burbs think I'm fucking crazy, right? Like they talk to me and it's like, 
all they want to talk about is their jobs or like TV shows that they watch or whatever outrage media thing has happened recently. And I don't pay attention to it really. And I don't, it, it just, it makes you kind of a weirdo to them. You know, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't care. You know? And then they, Oh, I can't, they can't believe that you can't care. And it's like, yeah, they're going to think you're insane by sitting in front of your fire, staring at the fire and zoning out for half an hour. than you are watching the latest, you know, Netflix, whatever. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting. It's, and the older I get, the more stark that difference becomes. It's kind of wild to observe. So, but you know, what's funny is it's all that it's still inside everybody, you know, like you get, you take people on a camping trip and at night, everybody's just sitting there staring into the fire. You know, these could be, you know, I've done this with, you know, silicon like tech guys, people who work at Facebook spend 12 hours a day at Google, but you get them out in the, in, in the woods and something wakes up in them. So it's like, it's just waiting to uh, be rekindled. I got to figure yeah. out how to capitalize on that, you know? Yeah. No, totally. <laughs> Start sending the tech bros out to hang out with uh, the 44 homestead, yeah. you know? So totally. I mean, I, I think I told you we did one uh, a few years ago. We did sort of a little men's retreat with like four guys, like some VC, uh, two guys that were in uh, real estate and then uh, a retired guy. And we took them out and we uh, basically just, we put them through the ringer, you know, we had them chopping wood and, uh, you know, like cooking wood, cooking meals over the fire. We were going on hikes and, you know, they had to carry the ax and we would like set up uh, logs across the path and be like, okay, if you want to get through, you got to, you got to chop through that. And then you have to carry the log to the picnic spot. And so everything was like, uh, it was like this ebb and flow of, of toil and then, uh, extreme, you know, joy. Cause then you, you'd work real hard and then you'd, you'd have this great spread in the meadow with like you know really good wine and cheese and stuff and they really uh it really worked well it was fun i don't know it'd be hard to i mean it's possible to monetize it but you know you almost don't want to monetize it either you know what i mean like you you want people to like figure that out on their own and like yeah yeah kind of have that self-discovery you know it almost feels greedy to 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 try to monetize it i mean people are yeah i mean i think what it did was it paid for itself it was like we broke even and we're and we're all happy we're like man this is this is great because we helped we helped them out and uh we had a great time yeah yeah it's um our homestead's name is field table and hearth and the reason that we we named it that was because we felt like there's three things that are endangered in our society right now and it's one is the the field and a connection to the field in a meaningful way, you know what I mean? Where, where you're working with the soil, you're, you're looking at the soil biology and, and, you know, increasing your fertility and seeing the results of that and working from, um, from sprout to harvest and a table, you know, like we're really big in our house of eating meals together. Um, we try to eat and it doesn't really happen so much in the summer, right? Because like after six, seven months of winter, you just want to be outside and it's, you know, it gets, you know, stays light till eight, nine o'clock at night. It's usually like super quick meals. We're outside and stuff, but in the winter, we really, really try to slow things down to have family meals. We're all eating around the table, gathering, convening, um, trying to have good conversation. And with four kids, I'm not always saying that that's easier. That's not chaos. It is, but, but we try. And then the hearth is in the winter, you know, we want the hearth to kind of be the center of our home. It's where we gather for warmth. We, uh, we listen to a lot of music. We read a lot of books out loud, um, but we're not spending a ton of time in front of screens. You know, we still have screen time for our kids. Our kids to watch stuff on YouTube and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. you know, we're trying to limit that and try to try to recenter us. And what I found is that making 
our land, our food, our table, our hearth, the center of our home is something that gives us again, it goes back to giving us a lot of meaning, a lot of sense of purpose, a lot of happiness. You know, I find a lot of peace in that. And I think that, I think that my kids do too. And I don't, you know, I don't think that they'll probably fully appreciate that until they're adults, until they're out of it. And then they look back upon it and I'm okay with that. But, um, You said you grew up on a homestead or have you always been in Vermont or you lived somewhere else previously? No, so I, I grew up in uh, a little town in Western Massachusetts outside of the Pioneer Valley. And um, I've had family out there since they got off the boat from England and uh, little tiny hill town, less thousand people. My uncle had a grass fed beef operation right across the road from us. And uh, my parents, you know, we always had a few chickens around. We always had a garden. Um, we'd get beef from my uncle. He had a sugaring operation. We were making maple syrup and stuff. And uh, we raised pigs every year, occasionally a cow. But we um, we worked our land with, with draft animal power, which is kind of cool. So I grew up working land with draft mules, draft horses, and oxen. And um, again, when you're growing up, you're not really, you know, it's work, right? Like, it's hard work. And so it's, it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of a pain in the ass. And then you, you get out I grew up in a very isolated area and, uh, grew up and I got out and I lived outside of Boston, went to a military Academy for a couple of years. And, um, it wasn't until I got out that I began to really appreciate what I had and really kind of form my vision for like, okay, if we're going to have kids someday, I'm going to get married and settle down. I want to raise my kids in a, a similar of a manner as what I had, you know? So mm-hmm. it was cool. It's cool. Yeah, it's definitely like something that to we came from. What's that? I said full circle. It, uh, you returned back to your, mm-hmm. your roots. Uh, you grew up on a cranberry farm, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a diver. No, that was that's Eric playing a joke on everyone. I I have never done anything with cranberries in my life. <laughs> that's an interesting uh, denial. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. New Jersey does have cranberry farms in like South Southern and Western New Jersey. But uh, I think it's actually one of the biggest places in the country where they produce cranberries. But um, no, I have no affiliation with that. That's all Eric's imagination. I was expecting to come out of like the ocean crest cranberry t-shirt on just ready to roll. You know, you're uh, working the bogs, your waders on, you know, just coming off the bog. So it's all a lie. It's all yeah, fake. Sorry about that. Yeah, funny. That's funny. No, it was it was a good way to grow up. And like again, I'm not saying I hope I don't make everything seem like idyllic, right? Like I didn't grow up in an very much didn't grow up in an idyllic setting, but there were elements to it that I um you know I, I tried to carry into adulthood. And I'm trying to do with our kids, you know, like the meal thing, the connection to land. You know, my house, we always, my, both my parents could cook. And that was probably one of the greatest blessings they gave me. They, they were both really good in the kitchen. And um, meals were like, we always ate together, like almost every night. And um, that wasn't idyllic, you know, like I didn't grow up in a great home, but we ate together. And that was, that had a profound effect on me into adulthood. So it's, yeah, I think it's about incorporating those things and, and you know, trying to do that for my kids. Yeah. So and for myself, right? Like, get a lot of joy out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you always want to uh, homestead when you grew up, or 
were you trying to get away from it originally? And then, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like when you grow up, you, you grew up in a small town and it was uh, the town I grew up in. It's kind of poor. It was this weird mix mash of hippies and rednecks. And um, it was uh, when you grow up, you just want to get out. Right. Like I got to, yeah. I got to get the hell out of here. Yep. And you know, my goal is I, I went to a military academy. I was going to join the military and, and, and serve. And I always had an idea that I'd go back to it. You know, I was going to put in my 20 years and retire, figure out something else. And uh, it's a long story as to why I didn't go that route. But um, yeah, I couldn't wait to get out. And I got out and I, I'll never forget. I was back home one night and the only bar in town, it's like full bar stools, a couple tables, classy little place. And I ran into an old classmate of mine and she, um, her mom had gone to school with like all my aunts and uncles. We're talking like multi-generations of, of, you know, we all knew each other. And she was living outside of Boston at the time. And she was like, man, she's like, Jesse, I just, I can't wait to figure out how to get back home. You know, she's like, she's like, fuck this. Like, I don't want to live in the city. You know, like I want to go back home and, and work the farm that she grew up on. And I remember thinking like, man, me too. Like, that's all I want. And so it was, um, I very quickly after I went out and traveled a bit and saw the world realized that what I had at home was pretty good. You know, the community that we had, uh, the lifestyle that we lived and it began this like 10 year journey of me and my, my wife trying to figure out how to make that happen. And we spent many, many nights, you know, I was in my twenties spinning my wheels as, as far as a career goes, working shitty jobs, um, trying to make money, trying to figure out how do we kind of escape the the city life and get back to how i grew up and um i wish i could sit here and like tell people who are listening how to do that we basically just got lucky we bought a house at the bottom of the housing market in 2010 and flipped it a couple years later for a six-figure profit and we're able to come up here and buy kind of our dream property um so we just got lucky essentially you know but yeah i definitely it's definitely something that you develop an appreciation for as you age and then it's the challenge is once you get out, how do you get back? Right. Because it's, it's not easy finding jobs in a rural area and you have to kind of adjust your standards of living to realize that, you know, you have to be okay being, you know, relatively not a high income and just kind of making it work. Um, obviously all that's changing with the advent of like high speed internet in rural areas. My wife works from home. Um, I have a lot of friends up here that work remotely as well and make a pretty good salary, but, uh, yeah, definitely, definitely was ingrained in me from uh, from early in my twenties. Like, how do I get back? How do I keep doing this? So, hmm. how much of uh, what you consume is like from your local? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, it's funny. A lot of people ask me this. It's probably eighty to ninety percent. Um, and again, I, I think it's that, you know, all of our beef comes from our land. All of our pork is local. All of our chickens local. Eggs are local. Um, it's not until you start getting, ironically enough, into the processed foods that you start getting stuff that's not from the area. Um, mm -hmm. So most of our protein comes from our own land. Even if I don't have time to milk my cow and the calf gets it all, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pulling milk off the bulk tank at work stuff you know working at dairies so i can just fill up the jugs of milk whenever i want um a lot of it yeah 80 to 90 percent, i would say and that 10 percent is probably like stuff you're cheating on you know like sugar or you know i don't know even our wheat right like my neighbor grows 50 acres of organic wheat and so we'll go down a couple times a year i get a 50 pound bag of 
stone ground flour that was raised within 10 miles of our house and we're doing sourdoughs with it and awesome. you know, that's what we make all our wheat stuff with so it's Vermont's in a very unique position to be able to do that because agriculture is really kind of the backbone of our economy. Yeah. So it's, um, it makes it really easy and it's a lot of small farms and people depend on each other. So it's very easy to develop networks of, of people to acquire things that are local. Do you do any hunting? I grew up, I was big hunting and fishing family growing up. Um, if it wasn't beef, we were eating venison. You know, we did a lot of upland bird hunting. Now, as an adult, it's really just a matter of time. You know, I don't have the time to get in the woods like I used to. Shoot grouse once in a while. Um, I haven't actually shot a deer since I moved here, which is a little embarrassing. But also, I haven't really gone out much. My freezer's full of beef anyway. So, mm-hmm. but I, uh, I'm very, I'm very pro hunting. I think it's a, a great way to get out, connect with nature. I, I have this theory that if you're going to eat meat. I think that everybody at one point should kill or be present with an animal that they're going to eat, you know, because it's, it's a profound experience, especially if you've been insulated from that your whole life. Like it's, it's violent, right? Like people try to sanitize death so much in our culture that when they see it, I think it's a very stark thing, you know, to watch a cow get shot in the head and then bled out. It's, it's a very violent act, but um, I think, or shooting a deer or whatever it's, it's, yeah, I think it's important for somebody to kill what they're going to eat. You'll definitely, when you, you'll definitely get it. Young, your first fish yeah. is is um, shocking. Killing the first fish, yeah, uh, you know, and yeah. the, 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 I still remember the feeling of it and like not knowing what it felt, and then being happy when I yeah. ate it. Um, it's good. I think it's good for you. I think it's good for to have that kind of connection because then you realize that the life is precious, right? Like it's um, all life is is precious and very unique right like in, in the sense of the grand scope of the universe from what we can observe from planet earth at least there's a lot of empty space and not a lot of life and so to take life to consume it i think is fine morally but i think that it's important to to do that task at least once in your life you know and and you will gain an appreciation for that life and really like you want the best for it like i want my cows to be able to be fully cows and to enjoy their lives before they're they're killed and put in our freezer or sold. So, yeah. Do you consider your, um, uh, I guess the matter that you live like a spiritual act? I do. Yeah, I do. And that, I mean, God, you can do a whole nother podcast episode on that. Um, I do consider it a spiritual act. It's, uh, I wasn't raised religious at all. Um, and I had a Baptist fundamentalist summer camp down the road from my house, like a mile and a half down the road from my house. And um, my mom got cancer when I was in, in ninth grade and she used to walk. She's a very active woman and she used to walk every night. And she ended up meeting this counselor at the summer camp who was sneaking off the campgrounds to chain smoke cigarettes. And so she developed this friendship with this lady and then she got diagnosed with cancer and she began getting involved. And that was kind of like her, her introduction to Christianity and, I got caught smoking pot when I was like 14 and as punishment, I got sent to the fundamentalist Bible camp down the road from my house. Um, long story short, you know, became a Christian, uh, walked away from my faith after accumulating a couple of degrees in theology and slowly but surely, I think finding my way back. Um, I'm not a materialist, right? Not in the sense where 
I, I went through a period of time where I thought that everything was just chemical reactions, you know, uh, laws of physics, um, that there wasn't anything kind of transcendental happening. There was no transcendent. And I've, I believe that I'm hitting a point where I realize that that's an incredibly bankrupt way for me to view the world. Um, there's something going on here. I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that's beyond what we can comprehend. And whether that leads me back to a more orthodox faith in Christianity is, is yet to be seen. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, but if you look at ancient human practices, they found great purpose and great spiritual um, resolve in certain things in life, right? Like, you know, being connected with your land, rituals, sacrifices, feast, seasons of feasting and fasting. And when I do those things, I do feel a deep spiritual sense, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you have to ask questions like, what does it mean to be human? You know, and, and why do we find such great purpose in taking wood that we've split and throwing it on our fire to keep our family warm? Why do we feel this deep, innate sense of peace when we stare into a fire or we lay out and look at the stars for a couple hours at night? You know, there, there's something to that that's more than just, a dopamine hit or a, a chemical reaction in our body. I, I'm convinced and I could be wrong, but that's, yeah, that's where I'm headed with it. Oh, definitely, so, yeah. yeah. It's like people are trying to try to reduce sunlight to vitamin D, you know, like oh, this, God. Yeah. as if being yeah. in the, the sun is this giant vitamin D dispenser in the sky and you have to go out and get your shot. Uh, and then you yeah. can go back to your, go back to the important stuff. Yeah. Uh, it, it was always sacred in like all these cultures, right? Like the sunshine and, and sun is always, there's gods that are named after the sun. You know what I mean? Like there's obviously a deep, innate yeah. human thing. And I, I think to be fair, I think a lot of modernists, we think that anybody born before the enlightenment was an idiot, right? Like it's like, oh, some of those people were smart, but yeah, they believed in gods and all this stuff. And we kind of denigrate their, their thought processes. And we don't realize that they had a lot more shit figured out than we do. Um, yeah, stuff like the connection to sun, water, wind. Yep. There's an entire, just multiple histories and multiple cultures that hold those things in very high regard. So, yeah. And when you personally feel you like the uh, the presence of dopamine and other neurotransmitters is like proof that there's something beyond it. Because if you look at the stars, you get a hit of dopamine at the wonder of it all. Uh, the dopamine is there is an indicator that there's some higher reason. You know, there's some reason for you to be looking at it. You know, it's not the dopamine isn't the point. The dopamine is sort of a, uh, I don't know, it's, it's programming from some higher power. It indicates that, oh, we should be doing these, these things. It's really interesting. I, that's how I look at it. It's actually like learning about all this stuff, all these chemicals in the brain and whatnot, make me actually more religious in a weird way. That's something I've noticed is people who it's not it's counterintuitive, but people who spend more time doing things with the what you would call like the material world. So you know, obviously you're like homesteading or you're dealing a lot with ingredients and cooking or whatever, uh, tend to be the least materialist. You know, capital M. Uh, they, like where people might think it's the other way around. It's it's much more likely to be people who are totally divorced from the land and um, from nature and who are just you know, reading books and studying or whatever are much more likely to be uh, materialists in, in both senses, actually. 
yeah. top of the lamb's uh, small lamb too. Yeah, you definitely see it. Like the more the more time people consume, um, I think media in general, right? Like the more time people are on social media or consuming shows or the like again the latest outrage news news cycle, the more the more disconnected you are from reality, the more disconnected you are from the the true kind of roots of human nature, all the good and the bad. And um, yeah, yeah, you look at the people in my life personally that what I consider to be the most out of touch with reality are the people that are unironically are the heaviest consumers. Like their whole life revolves around just consuming, 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 whether it's, you know, cheap calories or shitty media. Uh, it's just what, what kind of drives them. And it's, yeah, it's sad. It's sad to me. You definitely feel misunderstood by that crowd. Um, but again, I also don't really care what they think. So. You, um, I think, well, we touched on it before, but you did a five-day fast recently, right? Yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, three, two or three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. What's, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I guess one, why such a long fast? Is it like a, like a new, uh, I guess, a physical benefit you're looking for? You're trying to push yourself or is it a spiritual thing or is it a, uh, integration of these multiple things and um, what's your experience day to day? And, and I haven't done a fast that long. Um, I think the most I did was like 60 hours or somewhere around there. But, um, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I think I've been doing, um, so I was, this is kind of funny. I told my wife early on, I got married, stupid young guys. I got married. I was 21. My wife was 19 and, uh, man, we, it lucked out. Like we, we are very happy. We're madly in love, wildly attracted to each other. Um, I feel very, very blessed in my marriage, but early on, I told my wife, I said, I said, listen, you know, there's a good chance I'm going to go bald, but I'll never be fat and bald. I promise you. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I promised her I'd never be fat and bald. And then, you know, um, it was funny. I was living on the North shore of Boston and lo and behold, man, I started gaining weight, you know, and I wasn't really eating that healthy. And, and, but even comparatively, like I look at other people and I'm like, oh, I'm eating way healthier compared to them. But, you know, it wasn't until I started educating myself and started realizing, man, a lot of the stuff I'm consuming is not good for me, you know, um, seed oils, empty calories, that kind of stuff. Um, I was started figuring out like, man, I, I gotta start working out. I'm starting to get a little fat. And what was happening was I was, I was working out, and I noticed very quickly that my recovery times are way slower. I was getting sore longer. You know, I'd go for a five mile run and I was like, man, like you can do the run, but like, I'm hurting like beyond just like a sore muscle thing. Like my body aches and that kind of, and I, and I wasn't losing weight. I wasn't losing any weight. I was getting in better shape, but I was beating up my body. And so I started kind of researching like, man, how do I lose weight? Right? Like I'm getting fat. I'm working in a shitty office, losing my mind at the time and, and starting to creep up. I was like 240 pounds, man. I was, I was getting fat. And so my wife started researching stuff and uh, we were looking at like Rhonda Patrick, um, Dr. Jason, was it Fang or Fung or whatever on um, the fasting Jason guy. And started getting, yeah. Yeah. And, and we started researching fasting. And so that's how I got into fasting. It was a purely health motivated thing. And it worked. Like I started doing like two forty. I started doing a 48 hour fast every month and starting to clean up what I was eating, clean up my diet. And I started just shedding weight. Like it was slow. You know, I wasn't just shedding it, I guess, but over the course of a couple of years, I began dropping weight 
at a pretty good rate. Um, and so then I started changing as I lost weight. I found fasting to be harder, you know, as my, my body fat dropped. Um, and so I started thinking of different ways to fast that would feel better, especially like I work a very physical job now. And so I had to be conscientious of that. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a spiritual thing. I've tried to make it a spiritual thing and it just feels fake and contrived to me, which mm -hmm. I'm sure is a personal thing. It's not like a, that's just the way it is. Um, so I do a five day fast every fall. I do a five day fast every spring. And then I'll sprinkle in, like I did a two day fast every Thanksgiving, just cause I gorged myself on, on pie and, and, uh, you know, all kinds of good stuff like that. So it's not spiritual. I would, I would like it to be. Um, maybe it is in the sense that it's, it's, you know, I don't really realize it, but it's mostly just about physical health. You know, it definitely does yeah. recenter my mind. I definitely find that when I'm coming off a five day fast, I have like zero sugar cravings for weeks after. Hmm. Um, it's, I call it like a hard reset. Yeah. yeah. It's just a hard. Is there, is there a certain point on like after day three is just two more days is not a big deal or, or like you get to that fifth day and you're like, I, I really need to eat type of thing. You know, for me, the first day and a half is always the hardest, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, I get a buddy, he's probably going to listen to this podcast, but he was, um, he does a five day fast as well. And we try to do it at the same time. It's the first 48 hours we found is the hardest. And then once your body kicks into ketosis, you seem mm -hmm. to just cruise, you know, and by day five, I could honestly go, I feel like I could go a week. Yeah, I feel great. My, my day four and five are my best days. I'll even work out sometimes. I'll hit the sauna. Um, I think that fasting really is kind of a skill. Like the more yeah. I do it, the better I, the more efficient I seem to become at it. The more I learn like what foods to kind of pick at as I'm coming off a of fast um but yeah it's it's the first 48 hours after that you can you can cruise through it mm -hmm. so how do you notice your sleep during that length of time does it change at all or is it harder to wake up or is it easier or, um it's it's weird uh, i don't know this is gonna sound kind of weird have any guys dabbled with psychedelics yeah. Like Matt, like mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. He's giving the hesitant yeah. nod there in the video. I'm on mushrooms right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I noticed that this is going to sound really bizarre, but there, after like 48 hours of fasting, when I sleep, it's almost as if, and I've dabbled with mushrooms before, obviously. And, I feel like I get a very similar sleep as I do when I'm on mushrooms. It's like, I, I, I have the craziest dreams. It feels like I'm kind of in and out of reality. Um, it can be very, very hard to snap out of it and wake up. Once I'm up, I feel good. I can usually cruise and I usually don't feel sluggish until later in the day, but I have crazy dreams when I fast, man. It is, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. I mean, there's a lot going on, I think hormonally in your body when you're, when you're starving yourself of calories like that. So Maybe that's a unique experience to me. But, yeah. hmm. Do those dreams stay with you from those times? Like, did, did it end up being like something that you think think about and ruminate on? Like, or it's just, you notice it at the not time? Not really. About them? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I really, a lot of it's just like kind of nonsensical. So like, I don't have any like deep profound dreams where I come out of it. And I'm like, man, I just learned something deeper about the reality around me. That's uh, only Kevin. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm done with my dreams. I wish I had that. No I'm happy to talk about somebody else's mushroom dreams instead of my ones. I didn't even have mushrooms as an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got your own cows, I suppose you're, you're creating a paradise for new mushroom growth anyway. You know, I'm, I, uh, I probably could, but I haven't gone down that, that rabbit hole yet. You know, luckily when you're in Vermont, you're around a bunch of stoners and hippies anyway. So should you decide to go that route, they're always available. Um, but yeah, get, I mean, on that vein, the cows, our cows have really become the backbone of fertility on our homestead, you know, where all the bedding from the wintertime when they're in the barn, we compost that, that gets spread back out in our fields, all our garden beds, um, you know, if, if there's any kind of waste milk, we'll spread that back out. Um, so yeah, cows are definitely kind of the backbone of fertility on our, on our property for sure. Hmm. But no, we're not growing magic mushrooms yet, yet being the keyword. No. That could be an extra income stream. <laughs> That's for the retreat. I have, I have considered doing shiitakes, so. We just haven't gotten it together yet. Hmm. Well, what else you got? What else did you, did, did you plan on bringing up any topics yourself when you wanted to come on here? No, you know, I, I just figured I'd kind of leave it like an AMA. Uh, I figured you guys have kind of followed me long enough to kind of pick my brain about whatever topics you want. And I mean, it's plenty to, plenty to choose from, whether it's like homesteading or, being a father for, or, uh, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of my, my Twitter is mostly just like, a. I started, I started my Twitter account years and years ago. And for me, it was like, I was in my mid twenties and I'm like, God, like my entire career has gone in a different direction. I don't value my career. I just want to find a job I can tolerate. I want to get the hell out of a city. And so I kind of went on Twitter. I was also at this crisis of faith where I just accumulated a couple of theological degrees and then was trying to figure stuff out. So I started this Twitter account and it was literally just to follow people that I thought were smarter than me and to learn from them. And from there, it, um, it kind of snowballed. And one of my tweets went viral at one point, all of a sudden I woke up one day and had like hundreds of more followers and immediately locked, locked my account. I was like, this isn't why I'm on here. So it's, it's funny though, it became for me a way to like culturally critique culture without necessarily doing it all on whatever like hot cultural topics are at the forefront of our, our existence, you know, like I'm not following the Rittenhouse trial. I don't give a shit about that kind of stuff, but there are broader cultural movements that I wanted to critique. And also I wanted to just learn from people from a wide range of stuff, from health and fitness to posture to, um, you know, homesteading to just people that had kind of a contrarian voice and figuring out why they were holding the positions that the positions that they had. So that's kind of why it all, all started. So I'm on a podcast about, you know, psychophysical mm-hmm. stuff and that's where it's kind of at. So. Yeah. That's why I was, I was excited for you to come on because we'd, we'd been talking about, you know, like relationships between mind, body, spirit kind of thing, mm-hmm. but we were, mm-hmm. we hadn't really talked about environment. And how, you know, sense of place and uh, what's going on around you is then interacting and, and affecting mind, well, what we normally think of as mind, body, spirit. Can yeah. you talk a bit about that? What's, what's your experience been of how, as you've 
uh, got more into homesteading and more as the environment around you change, changed, how that's changed other parts of your life? Oh, I mean, yeah, sense of place in general, I think is, um, again, I think, I think I begin that from like a cultural critique, right? Like we're in this incredibly transient society where everybody moves all the time. Um, we're very disconnected from nature. Um, there's been this atomization of the family of community. Most people don't know what a community is. Most people don't even know their neighbors. Um, and so, you know, my wife grew up and she moved like seven or eight times throughout her childhood. She was constantly being uprooted. And very early on, we both were like, we want to settle down in a place where we can develop a sense of place and put down roots, you know, literally and, and metaphorically. Um, and so we did, it took us a while to get there, but how it changed us I think a lot of it comes back to your connection to nature and the connection to the people around you. And, um, you know, for being out of staters, everyone in Vermont calls people that aren't from Vermont flatlanders. Right. Um, they're kind of looked down upon. They're kind of like, Oh, you know, some fucking asshole from Massachusetts. Um, but having grown up rural, I was able to kind of get into this community and, and the sense of place, I think comes down to two things. It comes down to your connection to nature and the connection to the people around you. And we have some, a small circle, but a very deep circle of people that are very connected to the land and very connected to each other and community. And we feel very, very blessed to that, to have that. And so sense of place, it's not necessarily a physical location thing. It has to be rooted, I think, in a connection to nature and a connection to community. And yeah, I see people, people follow me on, on Twitter that are like doomsday prepper types, you know, and they're all about being self-sustainable as much as possible. And um, I don't think that's the answer at all. I think if you're focusing on being completely self-sustainable and you're stocking up on AR-15s and 223 ammo, that when that period of time, if it comes, you're going to be sorely disappointed because I think the people that are going to survive and are going to find true meaning in life are the people that have the community around them that you know, people are helping each other out. People are suffering together. People are experiencing beauty together. People are supporting each other through the shitty times and the good times. Um, you know, sharing resources in a profound way. Um, that to me all goes back to a sense of place. Like ultimately, like humans are longing for home, right? Like I think Keith hit on that earlier. Um, it saddens me because I think there's, I was very blessed to grow up in an area where I was connected to my land, connected to my my community and i think a vast majority of people in our modern developed world don't have any of that and so it's um you see people grasping at straws constantly trying to get back to that and maybe that i'm doing that a bit as well but um it is a, a psychophysical spiritual thing is to possess a sense of place and to cultivate it and um I don't know if that answers your question or if you need to. Yeah, no, I mean, just, I just, know, I just know it my, noticed for myself from between when I go f between Scotland and well, the Highlands is quite different, obviously, from the rest of Scotland. But from going from the Highlands to Cyprus, my mind is just it's, it's just different. Just a different, uh, I don't know, there's just a different uh, tone to my conscious awareness that's beyond just you know like larp you know i'm in a new place i'm gonna pretend to be a med now it's, it's just something that just it just happens and even like a day before i travel 
So like I, I'm not like a big planner of traveling. I don't think about it at all. I know I'm going or whatever on some level, but it's like what I have like a kind of 24 hour time delay or something. And just before then I suddenly go, I'm going to the next place. And then suddenly I just start getting interested in, in other things that's related to the place I'm about to go to. Uh, it's yeah. very weird. And it just, it's really, it's like a happening to me thing. So I don't know what level that is. Uh, you know, just, just going by the books, the books I'll read in the Highlands are just completely different than the books I'll read here. And there's just like it flips in a day or two. It just like, just flips. It's really weird. The books you're drawn to. Well, the last time I was in the Highlands, it was all kind of like uh, Norse mythology, that kind of stuff. And because um, where I'm from is like, it's in the sagas, you know, it's, uh, they don't name the place, but the, there's a beach, a remote beach nearby that's named by Vikings. And uh, that whole area, it's covered in a couple of the sagas where they travel around, you know, when they go around to Ireland. And uh, so, yeah, so that kind of stuff's in the land there. You feel it. And I used to have, I used to have dreams actually when I was younger of like a lone Viking guy on a boat washed up on the shore there uh, when I was younger. And uh, that kind of all stayed with me. But then as soon as I come here, I've just no interest in that at all. And it's not, in some ways, it's not that different. You know, the land here is, it's more, it's kind of um, obviously surrounded by water here as well. And the, the land itself is kind of, kind of harsh, rugged. It's not really, it's not like fertile here. You know, it's really, it's quite dry. Uh, this part of Cyprus, anyway, it's different in the north. But, uh, and the where I'm from, the highlands is really rugged. It's just like a rock with a few bits of grass poking out of it. Um, and I just the the difference from the, the difference mentally is just it's amazing from the from the different places and I've come back and forward enough times now to know it's like a real thing I'm not just imagining it it's not just uh, something to say you know it's a real thing uh, so I can see how I mean you go to a beach town and it... sorry oh sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt go ahead no it's okay what did, what did you ask. I was just saying that happens on the micro level. You know, you could go from uh, inland to a beach town, and right. for lack of a better word, the vibe is totally different there. You know, it's not just the people; it's you go there and something in the air. Yeah, and you can Even, just imagine uh, if you, a group of people in this place are just going to change and be different from a group of people in that place. Even mm -hmm. if they all came from not that long ago, the same mm -hmm. place, uh, yep. and then obviously their biology and everything's going to start changing and. Uh, it, it all ties into the same thing and then your your understanding of you know like we we're talking about earlier this sky and the weather and the things around you is going to change and that's going to play back into the food you're eating which going to change biology again and uh, everything's everything is interconnected yep does your girlfriend when she goes does she go with you back to scotland at all yeah she's been a few times yeah is, is that like uh when she's there and then she goes back to is she from cyprus or is it like uh yeah she's half separate yeah yeah, I was wondering what her connection was like when she goes from Scotland to back home. You know what I mean? Like if that's like a, she kind of experiences. The same uh, I, to thing be honest, uh, I prefer it here more than she does. She likes. She actually prefers the cooler. She prefers the UK climate. Actually, uh, we oh, wow. like we lived in the nice. southwest of England, and uh, it's really quite wet and dark a lot of the time, but really nice in this in the summer. Really green, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, yeah yeah. I just wanted to get out of there. It was just too dark for me, and then. Twitter, Twitter took control of my brain. I was need to get to the sunlight. Need to get to the sun because everyone's talking about the sun, you know. And uh, so then I got to the sun and it did make a big difference to me getting in the sunlight. But um, 
I've been here long enough now. The honeymoon period of here is gone now. I see equally the good and the bad of living here. It's like there's no there's no LARPing left in me now. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. So, so the whole going back to the something's funny, man. Like we have, you know, it's it's a lot of I don't want to say a lot of darkness. Like I've, I've worked in Alaska before. That was that was fucking dark. But like down here, you got these long winters, shorter days. You know, like right now the sun's rising after seven. And it's dark at like four four thirty. And uh, I'll find that come like February, I'll do like any excuse I can to be in the sun, like any excuse. If it's like 25 and sunny, I'll have my shirt off outside just to like try to soak it in. You know, it's um, it is funny how that like becomes a driving force for me. And I feel like I'm a lot happier if I can just get any kind of sunshine, as long as it's not windy, get any kind of sunshine for 20, 30 minutes. Definitely affects my my mood and my outlook on the day for sure. Yeah, and going back to the Vikings, I mean, their their sun god is a goddess, so it's female. So you know yeah. they're they're chasing they're chasing the sun. Yeah. Last year is kind of a funny story. Last year it was like March. We had a day. It was like the first day had gotten up to like you know it was like twenty degrees and sunny. Been cold for weeks. And uh, I told my wife, said, "Man, I'm just gonna get naked. I'm gonna lay right in the front steps. I don't care, man. I'm gonna get some sun." She's like, "Yeah, go for it." You know, so I'm laying on the steps. I get a towel down butt naked my legs are hanging off the front steps and my wife goes i'm gonna go get the mail we have a we have a very long driveway it's like a quarter of a mile so i'm like all right so she goes walking up the driveway and i'm laying there just getting sun just loving life kids are doing something they're off and uh i hear her walking through the snow up to me i had my eyes closed and think anything of it and all of a sudden i hear uh and i open my eyes and there's a fedex guy standing there with a package like 10 feet in front of me and I'm just sitting there balls out and I'm like, Oh, sorry, man. I just kind of took my shirt and kind of tossed it over myself. And he's standing there holding the package and he goes, Oh no, man. Good for you. Good. Good for you. And so there's this awkward silence. I'm kind of, I'm still laying there and he's kind of standing there and he goes, uh, where do you want me to leave this? I said, you can just put it right there. He's like, okay. Okay. And puts it down and walks away. Never heard the guy drive up. Never heard the guy you know, pull in anything. Um, but yeah, man, it, it comes like springtime. That sun just starts getting a little higher in the sky and it's, it's like drives me. You that know, FedEx I, I guy has a Twitter like, account now asking everybody every day if they've sunned their balls today or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My, my wife said that yeah, if they're a FedEx driver, they've probably seen way, way more uh, scandalous things than that. So. Yep. Yeah. Part of the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention. So, like, we were talking about this sense of place, or like how you go somewhere and it's got a different vibe. Around where I live, there's all these little beach towns, and each town is like two miles long or something like that. So, um, and they're all right next to each other. And you wouldn't think that within whatever 10, 20 miles, uh, there's five or six towns and um, uh, you wouldn't think that it's like that different, but you, as soon as you get into each little town, it's got its own vibe and like the type of people that are there change slightly. Um, and the type of restaurants you find there are, are slightly different and, and all that. So even in such like a, a condensed area like that, each, each place has its own feeling or like a spirit to it. Um, even within whatever, a 10 mile radius. Uh, so there's something to that, that 
Um, I, I don't know. The, the, the town holds a spirit. The people in the town hold a spirit. The landscape can hold a spirit. Um, I remember another time too, I was, I was driving to visit my aunt and uncle live in uh, like Western North Carolina. So I live in New Jersey. I was driving down and um, I got past DC and then all of a sudden like the, um, the style of driving changes dramatically once you get into like rural Virginia, all the way down to North Carolina and people, uh, it's just not my style, not what I'm used to from driving like an asshole. Though, and then, uh, no, I actually <laughs> drive really nice. It's them that drive like assholes. Um, uh, <laughs> he does uh, look at him. He looks guilty. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I drive well. In a rush um, to get to the Columbities. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And as I'm coming back, so I spent like a, a week down there, a weekend or something. And as I'm coming back and um, I finally get to like the beltway around DC and everybody starts driving like me again. And I'm like, all right, I'm finally coming back onto like my home turf because I, I just like, it was way more chaotic on the road. People like cutting across lanes and everything. And uh, diff it was, it was a shit show really. If you drive around the DC beltway. But um, to me, that was like, that's what I understood. It's like what I'm used to. Um, so even that, like, it's, it's a weird thing. It's like the, the mannerisms even that people have when they're driving, it's what you feel comfortable with. It's, and I think that comes back to your sense of community or sense of region. Um, you, you don't realize how much alike you are to the people from your immediate community, um, until you go somewhere else. And then, uh, and then you could even see the differences. I mean, people can look similar or they buy the same stuff and all that, but um, there's very much like a spirit to different regions and it really comes out or you only notice it when you go to somewhere else and then come back to, to see the differences, how subtle they are too. But um, I think that's a cool thing about traveling is you get to see the, how things change throughout the country. Coast too. There's something about this. It's just such a high, fast-paced vibe on like the coastal East Coast. Yeah, like it's wild, you know. And it's like I I go down to Massachusetts to visit family every once in a great while. And I went from like you know growing up rural to then driving up and down the East Coast from like Philadelphia to to Boston and driving through you know all this crazy. I don't know. You you drive the East Coast. You know exactly what you're talking about, you know. Mm -hmm. And now being in Vermont, you know, I make it down there once or twice a year, and I'm like white knuckling it, man. Like I'm riding, I'm driving in my car, and like three lanes of traffic, and I'm like I'm freaking out now, you know. And it takes me, <laughs> it takes a couple of days to kind of get back into that vibe where I can feel like I can drive like a uh, like a mass hole again, right? Because I'm from Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's funny, like the first couple of days, I'm literally I'm white knuckling it, two hands at ten and two, we're driving on the highway, praying to God um it's funny but yeah i still i think about that too because i mean that there's so much congestion where i live and the highways are just uh, everybody's going 80 miles an hour and they're right on top of each other and i think about it and i um it, it's it's like I'm, I'm i could literally be like 30 seconds away from a terrible car crash and it's not a it's not a pleasant thought to have at all but it does cross your mind often and um there's actually Oh man, I got so amped up one time. I was on my way to a volleyball game last, uh, not this past summer, but the summer before. 
and um somebody i was in the the left lane so that's a fast lane here and uh and somebody all of a sudden just pulled off the side of the highway like slowed down from 80 down to like 30 in a very short period of time and the car immediately in front of me spun out and um i pulled off to the side just like i didn't even have time to think about it it was just a reaction and i probably missed the car that was spinning out in front of me by like it felt like feet, like six feet or something like that. And my heart's pumping, the adrenaline's pumping and all that. And, uh, and I, I just, I remember doing that and then having such like a intense appreciation for nothing having happened. Like I didn't get in an accident. The car in front of me spun out. He ended up, I think spinning, he ended up facing backwards, but there was no one behind us. So he just turned around and kept going. And then everybody went about their day. It was it was so strange, but so, like the intensity of emotion in that moment was like uh, it gave me such an appreciation for like um, I don't know what do you call it? like just being alive or having such luck at that point. Um, and I remember just being super amped up because the adrenaline for the rest of the day. Uh, I think I played really well in that game too because of that, but. Um, uh, yeah, I don't even know how I got on that, but it was, uh, I mean, you don't realize how, how quick it all could like be over. And, uh, I don't know, driving on New Jersey roads makes you appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe that's my point. I don't know. Um, There's, but it's like geez, one of those things where it's like, yeah. it's like hours of monotony followed by like moments of sheer terror. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean? like, right. like, yeah. 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 And those moments you learn. It's amazing how fast you learn in those like few brief moments where you have a close call, like how much you can learn about life compacted into like three seconds. Like literally, we're talking seconds, not minutes, seconds. Yeah. How fast yeah, yeah, you yeah. can learn. You know, it's uh it's it's profound, you know. Yeah. Keith, did you get that uh time slowing down effect happen to you? Did you have like a couple of seconds? Absolutely. Really, you're really aware. Yeah. 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 Um so yeah, like Jesse just mentioned, it was probably a few seconds where it took like where that all happened in less than, I don't know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. But if like to me, um, I and my car has this thing where it's like if you come up too quickly on the car in front of you, it says brake and it'll like flash a thing at you. And I think I reacted quicker than that was able to react. And uh, and it felt like five minutes was happening where I pulled off to the side and like just missed. But yeah, the, the time dilation thing was real in that moment. And um, I don't know that that's a really a stupendous thing about like your ability to adapt so quickly. It's like, you don't even realize what part of yourself is because uh, it's not your thinking mind that that's doing that. Like I couldn't have thought that quickly to, to do it. it. It's purely reactionary. And, um, and I think, you know, I, I had written a tweet about that a while ago, and it came up again recently. I think I was talking with Eric and Matt about it, about time differences. And um, and the point I, I was making was that it's really the amount of information that you're taking in. Like when time slows down, it really means like you're you're saturating the amount of information that your brain's taking in in that moment. And that's why it's slowing down is because there's so much more that you are 
uh, novelty. Yeah. experiencing. Yeah. And then when time seems to speed up, you're actually taking in less information, like, because you're, you're just uh, able to process it so much more quickly. Mm-hmm. I've had friends that have experienced like a lot, a lot of combat and um, particularly like urban combat in the Middle East and stuff. And one of the things that what about you was saying was when you, when you're going in, you're like clearing a house, <clears throat> like your entire world is like one and a half to two seconds ahead of you. Like that's it. Wow. And how you get this like hyper clarity, like nothing else beyond the, beyond a second and a half to two seconds ahead of you matters, right? Like nothing else matters right now. Like you're not thinking about your wife. You're not thinking about your kids. You're not thinking about anything other than like what's around the next door, what's behind the next door, what's beyond the next hallway and how that slows down time and kind of gives you this like hyper focus, which I think is, is similar, right? Like it's like, you get, and that's like, you talk to like adrenaline junkies and stuff like that. And it's like the same thing when these guys are, whether you're base jumping or you're bombing down a hill on a, a mountain bike or something like that, it's like you, you're, you only have the next second ahead of you, you know, and that's yeah. all you're, you're dialed in on and what that does to your brain. Um, when I was commercial fishing one time. I fell into a fish hold at the bottom of the boat, whereas we were catching some bad weather and I went to go put the hatch on the boat. We took a hell of a wave and I went up and over the side and I fell about 12 feet straight down at the bottom of this fish hold. And I remember, it was weird, man. It happened so quick. And I remember falling my hands got tangled up in the hatch. And so I wasn't able to break my fall with my hands. I remember falling straight down. I remember that like second and a half feeling like ashamed. Like I remember feeling like incredibly embarrassed that this is how I was about to get like fucked up and mangled. I remember thinking like, I remember thinking distinctively, I, I don't want to get paralyzed. I don't want to die. I'm so embarrassed. And then I hit the ground. I was kind of like knocked unconscious. And a couple of seconds later, I like regained my consciousness and I ended up being fine. Um, yeah, I was concussed, but it was wild that like second and a half, how much life was compacted into that, that little tiny blip of my life. Um, yeah, it was a very, very profound experience. Yeah. So yeah. It's interesting as well, the relationship between the, <clears throat> like there's the event and then there's the, like Keith was saying, the, re- the immediate reactions. Mm. The, the emotion comes later. So people kind of think the emotion, like the fear is to, is somehow, or, um, you know, like the fear is somehow there before, but it really isn't. You, you just react. You, the fear comes after. It's almost like the function of the fear is to remind you later to avoid the situation that you were just in, to avoid situations like that. It's not actually to help you in the moment at all because it's useless. You, if, if, you're, yeah. if you're paralyzed by fear, you won't do something. You won't, you won't do something. So like, but then people sub for whatever reason, uh, modern life or whatever, their own psychology, they have the fear thing that's just going all the time in daily life. Uh, it's just constantly there. It's completely useless. Uh, it's not really, it's not telling you to avoid, well, maybe it is telling people to avoid something, you know, if you're constant anxiety about your lifestyle, it's probably telling you to avoid your current lifestyle. You do an entire podcast episode on anxiety <laughs> yeah no anxiety and fear you know and why i think it's growing in our society right like we live a very com- most of us live very comfortable quote-unquote materialistic lives and, and yet anxiety and depression and all that stuff seems to be growing very very rapidly and, and becoming more of an issue so it's fascinating not a good gauge of health i think in our culture no but they got pills for that 
<laughs> better living through chemistry, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It just, no, it's, uh, anxiety, it just paralyzes your, your brain you just, or just paralyzes you. You just, it just puts you in a kind of cage and you don't even be, it's hard to even to notice for people to even to notice that they're in it because they're, it's just affecting everything, just holding them down. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's so many ways out of it are indirect. They're not direct, you know, to take the pill is the obvious thing, but there so many other ways you'll just, I remember what, like I was really one time when I was younger, I was quite sport. I was into sport and stuff when I was very young. And then I just stopped it, you know, like in the start partying or whatever in the early twenties. And, uh, I remember being quite anxious and stuff probably because of the lifestyle and not eating properly. And the, I remember just out in necessity, I got some part-time job and had to walk quite a couple of a few miles to get there. And I just couldn't understand how after the walk, the anxiety had gone. And then I, I sort of, it, um, I understood that phrase, you know, uh, brushing off the old cobwebs. Do you have this phrase in the, in the States? Uh, and I was like, oh, that was, it was like, I was, I came up with that phrase, like a similar phrase for myself, you know, and then I realized it was just a phrase that people had said for years. Uh, and it was just kind of shaking off those kind of surface level anxieties. And uh, loads of people haven't even reached that level of awareness yet. They don't even realize that just some basic movement and some of the stuff will just go away. Uh, it's not that real. Uh, but, right here uh, in Sunshine should be like our first like default, so like at least attempt at medicating ourselves. You know, <laughs> I'm convinced. Yeah. And it's, well, it, for no other reason than it's uh, accessible to everyone and you could just try it. There's, there's no risk or downside to it. So um, there's a lot of people for people, a lot of reasons for people to have anxiety. But um, if the reason you're having anxiety is you're just not getting enough fresh air and sunshine is um, that's easily taken care of. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then obviously move on to other things. But yeah, sim so that's something simple that if you experience those things, just try to get more movement, fresh air, sun, good food. Yeah. Whatever it may you, be. You talked about this before, Keith, uh, but anxiety is sort of like being stuck at a crossroads and just standing there, you know? And what's the yeah. solution to being at the crossroads is movement, you know? Walk, mm -hmm. like direction and walk. And so uh, you talk about psychophysical, that's just about the most psychophysical thing is, you know, uh, a simple walk around the block might cure your anxiety because you're the physical. Or at least help, yeah. Is you know, the, the, the movement of the mind out of the, the stasis of anxiety can really be fixed by physical movement. It's all linked. Yeah. I've certainly never felt worse after spending time outside and physically exerting myself. You know, like you never come back from doing that, regretting it ever, Definitely. ever, Definitely. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that alone should tell people something. You know, like even just a walk, I tweeted that recently, you know, you never regret going for a walk that you didn't want to go for. Like you, you never go, oh, I wish I hadn't been persuaded to go for that walk, you know, unless, unless, yeah. <laughs> unless your house happened. gets burgled when you're away or something, maybe you'd regret it then, but you're not going to, you just don't regret it. It's not, it just doesn't happen. The, it's interesting um, though, because I'll oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, go ahead. It, it's interesting because there's, um, you know, I don't, I don't experience this. I, I think I'm, you know, 
I think, again, it's like a luck thing or it's just the way I'm wired. But I have friends and family members that they know, you know, if they're anxious, they feel down. They know the solution right in front of them. Right. Like, they're like, oh, man, every time I go outside, physically exert myself, you know, I feel better. But it's like that. Again, I guess it's like standing at that crossroads. It's very hard for some people to take that initial step to go outside, to go eat some clean food or to go get some fresh air, sunshine. Um, and I always find that that fascinating. There's some people that just won't do it. And I don't know why. You know, I, I don't think know it's if that's a, like I think a laziness it's an thing. thing or... I think it's an ego thing. I think it, people, some people, especially an overly intellectual pe- person will be like, it can't be that simple. It's more, my mm-hmm. thing's more yeah. important. It's more complex than that. It can't be, a, yeah, go for a walk in the sun. How's that, you know? It just can't be that simple. It's because they're so separated from it. Uh, that their stuff that's all, that their whole life is all these words in their head. They're just so separated from the, you know, the bottom of the pyramid. They're right at the top. Uh, that they, it just doesn't even, can't even make sense to them. Uh, and it, like to, to just for it to work, we'd have to make them look like an idiot that they didn't know that it was like that. But then when you do do it and you find out something like that, you, you don't feel like an idiot. You own it. You, you love it, you know, because you've, you've found, gone back to yourself somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, getting the person to do the first thing is the, is definitely the hardest, including the, if the person's yourself. There is some weird brain stuff where uh, if your serotonin function is low. Uh, serotonin is one of those things that your brain, it's like a learning neurotransmitter. A lot of people don't know. And so in order to learn that something is pleasurable and good for you, you need serotonin. And so if a lot of people, if people don't have that function going, then they can't make the connection. They can't uh, create a positive association with, say, a, a walk and feeling better right. because the, the neurons just aren't communicating. So it's so they really have to like you have to be they have to be forced because they don't make that connection in their head. It's really interesting. But, what's the what's the how do you get uh, past that hurdle? Uh well, you got to look at why you're not making enough serotonin or why your receptors aren't receptive. So there's a lot of different causes. Um, a lot of it is just, you know, they eat shitty food, not enough protein. This protein is like the, uh, it's like the substrate for making serotonin, animal protein, especially. So something as simple as a steak could help. Yeah. I had a friend who tried going the, uh, the microdose could help. What are, your, what are your thoughts on microdosing real quick? Cause it's one of those things where it's like, I, you know, I, God, I, um, I've dabbled in microdosing a little bit and wasn't really happy with it. I feel like, I feel like historically microdosing things like psychedelics, which typically have a lot to do with your serotonin receptors. If I, if I remember correctly, historically people who take psychedelics do so in very large amounts and frequently, and then have these, you know, experiences or these, um, you know, shamanistic ritualistic practices. And now and I, I called this years ago. I remember telling people like microdosing is the future. Everyone's going to start doing it. I feel like we're at a point now where I know, I know like boomers are microdosing. I know millennials yeah. that are microdosing. Everybody's microdosing now. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, we definitely lack the data on it, but I'm very curious as to other people's thoughts on it. Cause right now I'm, I'm not necessarily against it. I just, man, it's a big question mark. We just don't know what that's going to do to your brain over the yeah. long haul, you know? No, I agree. It's not traditionally historically how it's been used too, which is, which is always a red flag for me at some level. It's definitely a red flag. Uh, but one thing I also 
think about is that uh, people aren't historically in the same mental space as they used to be, you know? So maybe uh, even though traditionally you would just take large doses under, you know, the protection of, and guidance of a shaman, uh, maybe people are so fucked up now that uh, you need a little, a little weird, you know, extra non-traditional input. Yeah, the context so is definitely helpful yeah. for things like uh, depression and you know PTSD. That's that's where I've seen it used. I've I've, I've used it a few times for uh, you know uh, if you ever listen to like some of those like Tim Ferriss type podcasts, they would people are using it for productivity, which seems kind of kind of cheap, you know. But uh, I did that a few times. It seemed to help. But you know the thing is, something can seem to help. And is it really? I mean, maybe, maybe that's how everything works. If it seems to help, it really does help. You know, that's kind of the placebo effect. But uh, I think it's probably pretty safe uh, because it's so. I think the point is to do it, and you don't even feel it. And so I would, I would think it's probably safe enough, especially if you have. I mean, if it's either depression or microdosing, I would say microdosing is probably safer than just sitting with the depression or taking, you know, antidepressants, it's a better option to try. I think it's important. And Eric, you may have, I think I've heard you make this point before is any one of those things or even alcohol too, uh, any type of like mind altering substance. um, One, you would want to use it with some type of intention or have some type of ritual around it not just like not use it like a multivitamin that you would have every day, but like have a a reason for it. And it may tie back to the same thing. Why uh, chopping your own wood and doing that, why that's more meaningful is like you, you have intention behind it. Like there's um, you've imbued whatever you're doing with a little bit of that, spirit of what you want the outcome to be yeah so um I, I don't think that those things are uh are, are something that would just unless or unless you you want to use it as a catalyst if you are experiencing anxiety depression and you want to do something that well you know you're going to get an effect and at the very least it's going to shift your mind in some way mm-hmm. um so i i think one ritualizing those experiences is important um, as opposed to just doing them recreationally or uh, as like a daily regiment type of thing. Yeah. 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 It's, at least with, regarding psilocybin, I think uh, one thing it does, uh, I remember being really interested in this when I read it is that it like uh, it shuts off the, uh, there's like a sort of a filter in your brain that filters sensory data, you know? So it basically, it allows things that are important for survival, you know, like light, sound, smell. But then the implication is that there's all this other stuff swirling around, all this other sensory data that we can't pick up on and that this filter is filtering out. Uh, and so one thing that psilocybin seems to do is kind of uh, inhibit that filter. So it allows more whatever, you know, we don't even have a name for it because it's, it's out there and we can't see it or sense it. So uh, maybe there's some utility in uh, having a very small dose and it kind of, it, it releases the, maybe the filter on some people is so 
constrictive and so restrictive that it it prevents anything from coming in, even stuff that's good for our survival and can help us. So maybe if you just loosen that up a little bit without even perceiving it, you're having a little more information coming in and you can break through some kind of a, uh, you know, you can step into, you know, you can uh, walk through the crossroads. But it's all, who knows? Who the hell knows? Yeah, that's why, I I mean, um, we've talked about this before, but um, we're all very big on experimentation and it and there's a lot of paths that aren't right for everybody and you kind of have to i mean that you kind of have to go try some things yourself to see if Mm -hmm. if it works for you because that's the most important thing is like you want to be um you want to do the things not just because other people are doing them but because they improve you in some way so that that would make it worthwhile and and the same patterns and um behaviors aren't going to work for everybody. So, um, you really have to experiment, be safe, but experiment with these things to see how they interact with your own experience and your own life. Totally. I mean, any of these scientific studies you see mentioned, it's always an average, you know, they have a thousand people on each side of the study and it's a thousand people. And then they just take all the results and average them out. And so, you know, you're an individual data point. And so one guy could have a huge, you know, reaction to something. Some guy could have the opposite reaction, but then they'd get kind of uh, averaged out and it looks like, like it's just one reaction. And so you can't really, you gotta, yeah, you gotta experiment with yourself because you're the, you're the only one that matters when it comes to things like this. It's, I mean, it's we're all funny the same as far as like the experimenting goes, it's funny because when I was 20, you know, I feel like I was in a place where I, um, I at least had enough foresight, thankfully, where I, um, I didn't experiment with a lot of that stuff. Cause I just, I, I figured I couldn't handle it in a sense where, you know, I, I, um, like, I feel like I have an addictive personality, you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like not that like psilocybin's addictive. Psilocybin's one of those things where I can keep, I could, you know, theoretically keep pounds of that stuff around and not be tempted to reach for it. But I think it comes down to seasons of life too. Like I'm, I'm at a point now where I feel like I can safely experiment with certain things that I'm not sure I was either ready for emotionally or mentally or whatever, when I was 20, 25 years old, now approaching 40, it's, it's kind of a different ball game. Um, it's just, and, and my thought process, I think is, is a bit different now than it was when I was a young man. But um, yeah, I definitely don't think that, playing around with certain drugs, you know, whether it was like MDMA or, or psilocybin or whatever, then I was 20 years old would be a wise choice for me then. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't think my life would go off the rails and out of control now, should I decide to go down that road kind of a thing. Yeah. Things so just affect just affect the one person differently at different stages in their life and they're in a different context, a different place, different things going on. And um, it's one of the most annoying things about Twitter actually, is it really, uh, amplifies this human thing that people have where they find something that works for them and then they're just they can't help themselves but generalize it to everybody judgmental and everyone has to do this one thing and they should do this thing that worked for them uh and it's really dangerous you know like lots of people probably most people should not take a large amount of some of those things ever it's probably bad for them some people have all come out the other side and it's better for them but they'll then tell everyone else that they should do it too and it's 
it's um you know it's the same for everything yeah twitter definitely rewards like uh absolute statements you know statements made without any kind of uh wavering or hesitancy yeah yeah i mean it has a and good to, kind of uh over certainty too it has yeah, a good control mechanism built in though where people can put side by side the tweets from one person saying the this thing then and this thing now uh but it doesn't really stop anyone <laughs> no one it's not preventing yeah. anyone from just keep doing it this is the thing now this is the thing now i mean there's some people no. it's just all they do and they're absolutely certain about each thing and i'm probably way guilty of that too you're guilty of it I'm sure like I, it's something that I've written down in the past and then I've said the complete opposite like a year later or whatever. So um, I don't know, you try to be consistent, but I, I think, I don't know, you, you get into certain frames of mind where something just makes sense at the time and you, yeah, but you're you write it. The way you do it is different. Uh, okay, so the way you do it is exploratory and experimental and playing, whereas yeah. uh, some people do it, it's judgmental. It's you idiots, you're not doing this thing that works for me now. Only oh, yeah, I, I actually you know, I really that hate that. Um, so it's, it's like a different thing. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's personality types or something. I have no idea. But uh, you, see, you do see that the most among like three things, though. It's like politics, religion, and health. Like those are the three topics that I see that stuff happen like all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's something to that, too. Like why, why are those three categories that people get the most like almost like fundamentalist and ridiculous about, you know, and then, the, at the most hypocritical, the most insecure about. Well, about. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's, it's, it's people, again, it goes back to this like dopamine hit when you put something in an absolute statement and someone's going to like it and share it a bunch of times. Um, it immediately, it almost pushes people to do that more, right. To, to continue making those statements and kind of go with whatever cultural winds are blowing. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, it's part of the reason I locked my account many, many years ago. Like I don't want my stuff shared in the sense that like, I don't need that to be a thought of like i don't ever want to post something with the the intention of it being retweeted a bunch of times like you know what i mean like it's like i think that's um for me at least like i don't i don't ever want that temptation to be there but yeah i think it's people go whatever the cultural winds are blowing and it's it's easy to do and it's easy to get that dopamine fix and it drives people to post even more ridiculous stuff and if that means contradicting yourself from six months or a year ago people are going to do that because they're going to chase that ego and um it's really a cultural phenomenon that's very broad you know i mean we see that everywhere you know it's not just in a little corner of twitter it's it's really a cultural it's it's a human nature thing i think at the end of the day more than anything else Mm -hmm. it's hard to separate yourself from that i mean the few of my tweets that have gotten uh any type of uh notoriety um one, I find myself like that happens and I'm like constantly checking again. Oh, did I get what any more comments or something like that? And then I, I a little bit of time passed. I was like, wow, that was awful. I should have just threw my phone away for like the rest of the day because um, one, it just ruins the rest of your day. You're just checking your phone for at least for me, it does. And uh um, it wasn't that much fun. <laughs> um, it was fun for a little while, but uh, damn it, it, it almost, it feels like you have to stop for a while because it was, it was too, you get yourself in some weird situation where it's like you, you're not in control of 
actually being intentional with your time. It's, it's all just, um, I don't know, some weird thing happens in your mind where you just want to check over and over and over again. It's not good. It's such a weird state of mind that I don't think it's ever happened. I don't think it's ever been available to man. You know, I mean that sort of on demand, like, uh, <laughs> Oh, these people are, you know, they like what I said, you don't really get that. I mean, maybe you'd have somebody, like you give a speech somewhere in the town square and people are clapping or something, but just to have it constantly, it's such a, it must create such a weird, a weird sort of environment in your brain. Mm. Very little yeah. accountability. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can, if you sit in the town square and you say something that's, that's really, you know, fucking stupid, you're going to have your neighbors and the people in your community being like, well, that guy's an idiot, you know, or that, you know, there's more of a, I think there's more of a there's it's more consequential right and yeah. in today's day and age you can throw anything out there and even if you like like right now the whole cancel culture thing you can go tweet something ridiculously racist and get canceled well then you know a week later everyone forgets about it and they move on to the next thing and so it creates this environment where there's like very little accountability or, or consequences long-term consequences to what you're putting out there yeah. which is a little scary if you think about it yeah you don't have to live with the people is the thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. you're saying that in your whatever, uh, the, um, at the market on the corner and your neighbors are here and you're like, this guy's crazy. Like what, what's going on here? And you got to see them every day. So that, that's a little bit different of a thing. Whereas they know, uh, they know if you're bullshitting, they know if you're just saying stuff that isn't true. Cause yeah, he doesn't have a Lamborghini. He's got a fucking <laughs> Honda. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, I'm just, I'm just imagining a guy in the corner, you know, telling people to send their balls. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't sun his balls. I've never seen him sun his yeah. balls. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna become an evangelist. I'm gonna have the sandwich board with a hole cut out by my balls with a bullhorn. I'm gonna be on the corner just preaching about getting sun on your balls and getting that vitamin d fix and it's gonna be great so you're never gonna gonna get any more packages delivered to your house yeah surprisingly they still come and they still put them right on the front step from time to time i'm, I'm shocked so <laughs> i haven't scared them off yet they didn't leave a note or something be careful when you approach this man's house not yet not yet yet being the keyword there we actually just had a package stolen from our, uh, the mail lady puts our packages at her mailbox. And um, it was funny. I bought some mineral supplements. My wife did online and it said they arrived and it never came, which we didn't think anything of it. We're like, whatever that happens from nice. It was very rural. And uh, it, like a week went by and we kind of figured out, we're like, man, I think someone stole them. And a couple days after we figured out that someone stole them, like I was infuriated. I was like, oh, there's something about someone stealing something from you that feels so, you feel so violated. You feel so, like when someone personally steals, you, you don't know who the person is, but you feel so violated. It's enraging to me, right? Like I want to, I want to kick this person's ass. I still have an idea who did it, but uh, a neighbor found our package a couple miles on another road down the road, torn open. And it was funny because it was obviously, you know, I'm pretty sure it was a deer hunter who was road hunting, just driving around looking for deer. And they saw the package hanging off our, our mailbox and they swiped it. They got a couple miles down the road, pulled over and opened it. And they took what ended up being like $150 in mineral supplements and just tossed them on the ground. And they kept this the shitty little plastic shaker that you shake the stuff in. 
and threw out all the stuff of value. And so my neighbor came along and she was on a walk and she saw this stuff laying in a ditch and found the old wet box with our address on it and collected it up and, and brought it back to us. And uh, it was just kind of funny. It was like, you know, they took the least thing of value in it and then threw out all this stuff that they probably could have yeah. sold on eBay for a decent amount of coin. Yeah. But, We're gotten healthy yeah. with. What's that? Or it could have gotten more healthy. Had yeah. They taken a yeah. Well, there's yeah. the power of community right there, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was a good way. Like, I didn't really know that neighbor that well. You know, I knew her in passing, but now it's like, you know, I was like, man, you feel like, man, the lady's got my back. You know, she she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to take the time to gather this stuff up and come to my house, but she did. And and it's kind of like this deep mutual respect. It started off like you want to, you just, you're seeing red and you want to murder the jackass that stole your stuff. And then after it ends with this, kind of paradox of like wow like we have people a mile down the road from us that are genuinely good people that care about you you know and it was kind of a uh it was a needed experience for sure the i mentioned uh my uncle before who lives in uh like western north carolina my aunt and uncle and they before that they lived in florida and they said they um they they live in a place where like it's pretty remote they're in like the mountains so like their closest neighbor is like a half a mile away or even more like a mile away or something and they said uh they actually feel more of a sense of community living there than when they did live in florida when their neighbor was they had like a next door neighbor like the house was whatever 100 yards away or whatever and um there's something to that living in a more remote area, I think people have to look out for other people um, to a greater extent because uh, there's so few people in that area that you have to depend on. You can't just go to anyone. You have to make good relationships and be able to depend on the people that uh, will be around should you need them. Um, lots of times you can't just call the police or uh, fire department or something like that to help you out yeah. or it'll take wow. a really long time to get to you. Yeah. We, I've, I've, uh, a few summers ago we had a, uh, a bro there's a guy working on a gate dumbbell in my house and, uh, he was like welding or he was like cutting, cutting an iron bar and a spark flew over his shoulder. He didn't realize and this is in the summer and caught fire. This is California. So, you know, everything's flammable. Uh, and, uh, so the whole, like, hillside was on fire and uh of course we called the called the fire department but you know they got there in like 25 minutes <laughs> which if we had just stopped and like said oh we called the fire department we're done you know we'll wait for them like the whole forest would have been engulfed so uh but people were just stopping you know neighbors came by and we we put it out um and it's like you could you know the thing is in a place like that is people just have you know, they had shovels in their trucks. They had fire extinguishers. So, yeah, people kind of know that they have to be prepared and they're willing to pitch in. So that was kind of a cool experience. That was very early on after we'd moved in. And it was, it was kind of cool to see that people were kind of like that. Because we came from the suburbs where, yeah, you don't really know your neighbors. Yeah, You see that a lot out here. It's, it's funny because everything's like so politicized and, and politically divisive now where you have, you know, you know, you get the maggot chuds and the hyper progressive people. And at the same time, like we live so rural that, you know, they might have bumper stickers or signs in their yard, but guess what? When your car goes off the road, 
you're going to have to walk to your, the nearest house, which is some guy with a, a mega sign in his front yard and he's going to have to pull you out, you know? Yeah. And so I think it, it kind of tempers people a bit where, um, you know, it's, you have to help each other out or else. And if you don't, you word spreads so quickly that you're that asshole, right? Like yeah. in a small town word spreads fast. So at the end of the day, it's funny, like you can have these deep political and almost cultural divides, but it's also like, oh yeah, that guy, oh, he pulled me out of the ditch last winter or, oh yeah, mm-hmm. like I was short a quart of firewood and this guy helped me out at the last minute and yep. or vice versa, right? There's all these examples of that. And it's, um, I think it's healthy. I think it's really good that yeah. people kind of, you're almost forced to depend on each other because yeah, again, the, the fire department, the cops, the tow truck could be hours out. You know, it's just, you have to depend upon each other at some level in, in very little subtle ways that sometimes you wouldn't think of. Yeah. Um, I think it gives people a much better mutual respect for yeah. each other at the end of the day. It's like, you might not, you might not agree with that person, but you know, that person's going to help you out if yeah. like the shit hits the fan. And that's totally. a very deep sense of, um, of peace in a way. You know? Yeah. Keith and I were talking about this earlier is, uh, you know, I think friendship is the, is such a powerful force because where I live, uh, I have a, I have a bunch of friends uh, live in the area. You know, we all have our kids all go to the same school. And, you know, we don't talk about politics, but I just know that we, we're pretty much diametrically opposed. But I also know that if anything were to go down, they would have my back and my theirs, you know. And uh, I think that kind of that, that community, that friendship is can kind of bridge almost any gap. And all of these kind of real life interactions are uh, like that are putting putting cracks into the online echo chambers that everybody's going into and dividing them. And then this is like they're now the guys on there going, no, no, actually, I've met a guy who's one of them and he wasn't so bad. And it's like a voice of reason in the group and stuff. So it's important. Yeah. And, you know, the the most powerful thing is these these guys I was talking about, they're they're on social media and they're just kind of on the other side and they're, you know, really, they're very political on there, but yet, and they know where I, they know where I stand at least regarding some things. And because they know me as a human and I know them, it's uh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a a Twitter interaction, you know, actually they're cool. Yeah. The the thing about, Sorry, Eric, what, what were you saying? No, I was just saying it could pierce, you know, any kind of uh, uh, hysteria that you that you generate for yourself being on social media. Yeah, the, I was going to say that the thing about being online, um, most of the time you need something to talk about. Like you need, you need it to be topical. You need to have an opinion. Um, uh, and a lot of people form an identity that way about the, the stance that they're going to have on a certain topic. So it's, it's driven towards more of that fracturing of people, but it's not like, um, I, that's obviously, it's not the same case in reality. It's more about shared values. I think that you have with people, um, more of a human connection. And, um, that's why I see things like this, the, the metaverse or whatever that that's coming out and, uh, people are, talking about it's just another topic really like for people to pick a side or have an opinion about and uh even if it does become something you're going to have to find yourself in some type of topical cash uh with other people in that place so it just 
it continues to progress down more of the um, where's my tribe type of thing, as opposed yeah. to um, I can communicate with anybody if we kind of have shared values. Yep. So um, it's, it's a poor surrogate for real friendship. Yep. I think online you have a, uh, you have a profile, you know what I mean? Uh, in every sense of the word you have uh, like uh, in real life, you're more of a fluid being. Whereas online you, you can be kind of, you can be characterized by your people you follow, people you interact with, you know, everything can be quantified. And so you, you become a, yeah, you do get pigeonholed into this actual identity or a profile. Or it's, it's a lot more fluid in the real world. Yeah, because in real life, you can get that kind of thing where <clears throat> you know someone really well in this context and you know this other person really well in this other context and they're very different. And for some reason, all the paths are crossed in one place. And there's that, mo the, the very first moment is a, you feel a moment of weirdness for, for you because you're like, you have this kind of, there's this kind of relationship and then this one mm -hmm. and uh, it takes a few seconds or well, depend, depends on the people, obviously, to kind of settle into this now third, three person relationship. Uh, online, yeah. obviously, you don't get, you don't have that. That's like a psychophysical thing. You need to be in the room. If you're like with somebody, you, you're kind of, you're forced to be more nuanced about the person's, what they say yeah. than you are if it's just abstracted words, obviously, on a, on a mm -hmm. list. <laughs> you're going down the list, projecting all your states of mind onto what you read yeah. uh whereas yeah. when you're in the room with someone you're kind of in some level you're having to come out of your own state of mind in order to function in a conversation or whatever and also i think a lot of people uh, uh are just on twitter that we, you don't really realize a lot of the dicks are just drunk but in real life you'd see someone was drunk you know they're drunk and they're a dick but on Twitter, I think people, a lot more people are drunk a lot of the time than we realize. Yeah. Drunk right now. Just again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm There's one quite. of them in here. We've been infiltrated. Yeah, they're drunk. They're drunk or they're on Adderall or Modafinil or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 A, lot of, a lot of altered states happen. I think it's it's kind of important to, uh, like, I mean, I obviously hold to some relatively controversial views that would be, you know, most, I call them normies would kind of freak out about it. But at the same time, it's like, I try to remain anonymous online as much as what I can to some extent. But I also do feel like it's relatively important to be who you are online as in real life. You know, like I don't hold to any views that I would not share with my grandmother, you know, or a family member. That doesn't mean that I'm not shrewd in how I present myself publicly. Um, you know, I have a job. I have people in the community that I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to go there with them because it's not, it's not worth it. Yeah. Um, the outfall could be, could be costly, but overall, I think it's important to try to hold that same vibe in real life as you do online. You know, like, I don't, I don't really, I'm not trying to hide anything. You know, if people ask me where my stance is on, on particular things, I'll, I'll tell them. Um, generally speaking, I try to avoid all political topics and, yeah, that seems to be helpful. Also, once once you kind of check out on people, once you're like, oh, I don't follow like mainstream media and I don't really, you know, I don't really belong to any tribe. I'm not on your political spectrum. It, mm -hmm. it pretty much people are like, huh, and they either move on or they they get curious. Yep. Um, but there is something to being as much as who you can be in real life as you are online that I feel like is important because it's, it's just this very false, you, like you, you truly see someone's ego on their 
social media accounts, right? Like, cause it's just, it's completely unfiltered and it gives people this false sense of bravado and confidence and keyboard courage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a, it's the wild west of human emotions and ego, right? It's kind of nuts. One thing I was just thinking about recently is when I was writing, I was noticing I was writing in words that I don't speak. I don't, I was writing in, in phrases that I wouldn't use. So like I would, I would, I naturally would go to write it is, or, you know, when I would just say it's normally. So I'm trying yeah. to now more just write how I would speak it because I was looking and going, it's not real. That's not really what I'm saying. That doesn't sound anything like how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, well, I speak with a lot of apostrophes, but I, I tend to not write because it's better writing, but it's just, I mean, I'm not sure. Well, you want to use your R's or T's <laughs> or whatever. I know I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to pronounce yeah. the T in the middle of Save the, the bird up name. <laughs> There's already one T. That's enough. I shouldn't have done this entire podcast by dropping my R's like my uh, like my townie family members down in Massachusetts. So we'll get rid of the middle T's in, in the bird up name and they are at the end. So we've just got Twi. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we'll keep the first T. Twi. Twi's fine. I think uh, for as much as like you you never get a hundred percent of what someone's of what some or how someone truly is by just their online profile, but you could get a really good idea, um, mm-hmm. like who yeah. the people that are just like you just don't want to interact with at all, um, and you could get a sense of someone just from the way they interact online. Um, to, to an extent. I mean, you, you never get the full story, but you you know who you could kind of give a little bit more trust to or who you can open up more to and um, who like you just don't want to bother with based on just how how they write, react, uh, all those things. And um, it's also, you could also take it like, think about the like you don't have to interact with someone as a whole, but just take certain things that they you have shared interests on and uh, communicate along those lines. Um, so you, you could really choose as to like how far to an extent you want to, um, I don't know, go back and forth with someone if you're, if you're just not going to get anywhere else with them. But uh, yeah, my, my point is that you, you can get a sense of how someone is just by... Um, just by how they write, how they share themselves, how they, uh, the ideas they put out there, whether they would be actually good to talk with in person or, or just avoid altogether. Most people are good to talk with in person though. You get a more, uh, I don't know. It's just better, better than typing back and forth. Some people that I follow strictly for like intellectual purposes and that, or, or they're, you know, they're, they're culturally incisive right but i know i'm like man i'd fucking hate this person in real life like they would drive me up the wall right <laughs> so i have i have uh, some people on my on my list that i follow for that for strictly those purposes um so it's funny it's kind of a both and for me it's like i try to follow people that i feel like kind of rich my life or at least try to uh, and i don't follow many people right like it was like i tried to limit the amount of people I follow to try to limit the noise, so to speak. But there's a lot of people that I follow that it's like you guys, right? It's like it's something that's contributing to your life and your benefit and your well-being, and and it makes you a better person or it gives you 
you know, things to think about, to process. There's other people that I'm just like, man, you're really smart. That's really culturally incisive. I could, couldn't stand you in real life. <laughs> you can just almost tell, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, God, that person's insufferable, but they're really smart, you know. Um, that's definitely probably the minority of people that I follow, but um, you can just tell, I'm telling you, you just, you can really see people's ego. I just keep going back to that. It's, it's just, you know, consequences be damned kind of a thing. You can just, your ego is, is so prevalent in how you post overall. I think you just see people that are just being driven by the clicks, by the dopamine hits, by the, the internet fame, you know, it's very, very easily nowadays. I mean, you just have to tell a certain party line and you, you can procure quite a bit of followers and quote unquote attention or fame. Um, it's yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of how inseparable they are from that part of themselves. Like they, they carry it with them in everything they do. Uh, and not saying I, I don't in some way, but, uh, it's just a reality of human nature. You always carry your ego with you. It's going to be, it's going to be fascinating how the metaverse going back to that changes everything, right? Like we're not, we haven't dug too deep into the metaverse, but, um, how much more disconnects people from reality, from nature, from going outside, from real genuine community with real genuine consequences that force you to change for the better. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, I think that things like the metaverse online stuff in general reinforces some of our worst behaviors and limits us in, in growing in true community. It's a little, it's a little scary at the same time. I'm not terrified of it in the sense that this is just the way human, you know, human nature is. We're always going to be running up against new technologies and new things that can disconnect us as a community, disconnect us from nature. Um, this is something you have to, you have to confront and deal with and process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's no avoiding it. Yeah. And if you avoid it, I think you can actually do more damage again. Like it's like raising, raising these four little kids right now. It's, it's, and it's funny because I have all these millennial friends and, and family members that don't have kids. And they're like, man, how can you have so many kids in today's world? That must be scary. And I'm like, have you ever read a fucking history book? Like, like it's always things have been far worse throughout our history and far more chaotic and physically dangerous um you know it's it's that's just the way of the world right and it's just like you just gotta keep chugging along and and find your place within that i guess i don't know do you guys have kids i know eric has kids do you uh keith how many guys have kids yet no no yeah it's a wild ride yeah yeah i got nephews i got three nephews but no kids myself yeah i characterize kids as the ultimate human experience like i have a couple of good friends that are like i'm never having kids man but then they're trying to constantly you know travel or do these things where it's all about the experience you know and i try to tell them like man um kids are the greatest kids are the ultimate human experience in a sense where it's a complete mind fuck right like it's it's awesome it's joyful it's hard it's emotionally taxing physically taxing um but it's definitely the ultimate human experience i think you know and i think there's a track record of that historically right like why are you on earth 
It's like have babies and keep going, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, even even on this side of it, I can imagine I can't imagine anything being in a bigger event in your own life. Yeah. Right. They really set you straight, you know. Um, it did it for me. If you're like intuitive at all, or you're striving to be intuitive, you will see like nothing exposes your flaws and characters more as a human than like dealing with your own kids, right? Like there's like times where you're like, why am I letting my two-year-old dictate my emotions like this, right? Like this is crazy. Oh, yeah. okay. It's um it's it's wild. Like if if you're if you're trying to grow, nothing will test you like kids. Cause like I said, you just see every flaw, every bit of um impatience or um all that kind of stuff you want to come in no <laughs> my wife just opened the door for a hot second no checked in yeah no no one can be this long yeah. on a podcast what's that no one can be this long on a podcast so assuming <laughs> this must be finished by now today's my day off so that wasn't a, that wasn't the necessarily one, a hurry up. I think that was a curious if you're still doing this kind of look. Oh yeah, so. yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> probably, she's probably wondering if I'm back here hiding from uh, from our kids right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> guys, got anything else? Any questions? Burning questions? Uh, don't think so. No, this has been fun. Yeah, yeah we've been, been going a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize until I just looked down. It's almost yeah. Me. Yeah. Almost three hours, huh? The psychos are gonna be uh impressed with this. That's what the, the modern sovereign guys, that's what they called our fans are psychos. Only the psychos no, will no, still be sloppy. left this far into yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have to have uh one of them on talk about the metaverse because they're very big on it. Well they're they're like, big positive. They were like born in it. They were molded by it. They're bullish. Yeah. <laughs> bullish on the metaverse. Yeah. We're talking bulls. They're talking bullish on the metaverse. Yeah. Yeah, but wait, yeah, we'll definitely have to have one of them on. Yeah. Be fine. All right, guys. What do you think? We wrap it up? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Wrap it up. Yeah, my kids. yeah. Speaking of that. I, so, I got to take a leak like, like crazy. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm saying I've drunk yeah. about two liters of water. <laughs> And it's not, I don't have the sunshine to burn it off me. So, yeah. uh, cool. Nice to meet you, Jesse. And, uh, yeah, we'll, great meeting we'll you. Thank, thank you for having me. You're welcome. This I appreciate been, it. This has been fun. Gentlemen, it, is, it has been a pleasure. Likewise. Likewise. Thanks, yeah. right. Cool. Take care, See you later, guys. guys. Bye bye. All right. All right. Cool, See, you, <laughs> See you later. <laughs> See you later, Phil. Oh, no. People on the cycle so on the psychopath. <laughs> Finding the psychopath. No, that's getting weird. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> I like it. And even throwing physical in it just makes it sound even worse. So yeah. Yeah, I thought when I first started saying the psychophysical is when people think I mean let's get psychophysical, you know, like crazy physical, like uh, no yeah. pain, no gain kind of thing. And then I thought, oh, fuck it, it's amusing. Um, so. Yeah, they'll quickly learn. Okay, they'll quickly learn, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>